Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We're also on Facebook. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts and find all the fine offerings, including us, there at nationalreview.com. We also direct you to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash political beats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free as it is now. There's entry level for, you know, like a tip jar. Hey, you're doing a great job. Thanks. And also some voting privileges along the way. Mid-level for early access to shows and higher audio quality. And our upper-level bestest friends for early access, the higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered episodes, playlists, and more. It's all at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Well, you know, I was a little bit confused about how I was going to approach today's show, and I ended up coming up with a magnificent solution, Scott. So I, I, I have, uh, I came up with a set of flashcards with a whole bunch of sort of observations, stock observations that I can just drop in at any time or any place when I don't have something to say uh, that that's intelligent at all. And you know, this way, I, I can just generate podcasts endlessly in my sleep. In fact. That sounds like an interesting idea. I'm not sure if the quality might suffer. We'll have to wait and see. Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest for today's program he is a Director of Communications for Heritage Action, the grassroots and advocacy arm of the Heritage Foundation. You can find him on Twitter at Weinrich underscore Noah. And taking time out of the campaign season to join us is Noah Weinrich. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So take a, a few minutes here as we begin. Tell people a bit about you, your past, and how you ended up at Heritage and in the political ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually was a student at Hillsdale um, a few years ago, um, a number of years ago, in fact. Um, time seems to fly after that. Um, but before that, I got introduced to politics through National Review, um, thanks to my father, who was a loyal subscriber for decades um, back in the dark years of um, the early Obama years, um, I volunteered on some campaigns in the Tea Party era, um, read National Review, read some Hillsdale ads, um, ended up at Hillsdale, um, uh, met some great folks there, listened to Weezer far too much, um, then came out to D.C., uh, worked at a PR firm. Um, now I'm at Heritage Action. I've been here for the last three years. Um, you know, you probably know the Heritage Foundation. You might know Action. Um, we are the 501c4 partner, which means we get to have more fun than the foundation. <laughs> uh, but but we have a grassroots program around the country. You know, we have activists, sentinels um, who call up their representatives and make good trouble in D.C. Um, and this year we actually launched a super PAC, the Sentinel Action Fund. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. So deep in campaign season right now, but I will always make time for Rivers and the gang. And that is our uh, band on today's show, uh, Weezer, the chosen band from Noah. I went back to emails uh, first suggested oh, somewhere around three years ago, which is a good lesson for all you uh, would-be guests out there. You know, we do get around to you at some point. <laughs> it might take a while. But Stay alive is all we ask. That's right. You're, you're, you're on our spreadsheet. 
you're on our minds, and we will circle back. Uh, Weezer is today's band, and before we dig into the uh, music and career of Weezer, we turn the floor back over to Noah to explain to us why he loves Weezer, how he got into them, and why other people should care about this music they've made through now these nearly 30 years. Noah? Absolutely. So uh, I have a long, long history with Weezer. Uh, it actually took me a little while to come around to them. Early on in my uh, musical days back in high school, um, I was like Rivers Cuomo, actually. Um, and a lot of high schoolers, I was into, you know, the hard stuff. I liked metal. I liked punk. Weezer seemed, you know, they're these geeks. They're goofy. Um, they have this long history of weird albums. Uh, my mom actually bought me the Blue Album at a garage sale on CD for about a buck. Um, and it sat in my car for about a year. I never listened to it um, until later in high school. I uh, finally spun the record. I've you know I'd heard a few songs on the radio. Of course, it was familiar. Um, finally listened to the record and uh, just was blown away. I you know these guys were you know they were in high school at this time or just out of high school and you know connected with with me being a good angsty teenager connected with some of the songs. Uh, but was really impressed how they you know in what was 94 in the middle of, you know, the grunge and, you know, depressing nineties era, they're coming out with, you know, songs about um, sweaters and, uh, you know, water slides and uh, just weird, goofy stuff, um, but with great musical quality. So I started to love them there, saw them for the first time after a Braves game in Atlanta when they played the field after their uh, 2014 album, everything will be all right in the end. Um, Then in college, I got that album stuck in the CD player of my car that would not come out. And so <laughs> I subject, so I subjected my roommates for about a year to endlessly, endless repeats of the Blue Album. It's all we listen to. As you know, in Hillsdale, Michigan, there are some good radio options, but uh, not nearly as many as you'd find elsewhere. So we listened to the Blue Album probably 80 to 100 times, got very familiar with it, um, you know, could basically sing every note of the guitar solo in Only in Dreams. Uh, I was in a Weezer cover band later in college. Um, so I've seen them like four or five times at this point. So they've sort of been with me for every phase of my life. I've, you know, I find new albums to appreciate. Um new albums to not appreciate uh but i feel like you know like probably a lot of weezer fans i have a love hate relationship but um you know i really feel connected in a way to rivers um for better or for worse this story turns out so much differently if that cd that gets stuck into your car changer is (laughs) ratitude i mean that's right just imagine what it would have been Uh, all right scott do you want to go all the friends find a new car is what happens at that point (laughs) 
<laughs> it's it's like the, it's like the smelly car from Seinfeld. Only people don't take it because it has ratatouille. <laughs> Anyways, we're getting ahead of ourselves significantly. Scott, you want to go first? Uh happy to. Uh, Weezer uh, has a special place in my heart because uh, it was one. Uh, the Blue Album was one of only three albums that my wife and I had in common when we combined our music collections. Uh, we have vastly different tastes in music. And so, uh, if I recall correctly, the three albums that we had in common in our collections were uh, uh, Veruca Salt's American Thighs. We had Stone Temple Pilots' Tiny Music. Uh, I might have been purple. I can't remember. And uh, But the third one was the Blue Album from Weezer. So it's one of those three albums that my wife and I agreed upon uh, before we had even known each other. I... I think my first memories of Weezer really are that Buddy Holly is that Buddy Holly video video on MTV. I mean, I may have heard a song or two on the radio before that, but that Spike Jones directed video merging Happy Days with the with the nerds and geeks of Weezer and Fonzie. That is what is uh, sort of sort of uh, you know impressed upon my mind of the first time I, I saw Weezer and really heard them. And the song that sold me was Say It Ain't So, which would have been, I think, the third and final single from that first album. That, that's the one that made me think that there was something happening. I can't conform to another code That which might hurt you Try and be cool When I say We'll get into this as we get into future albums, but I did not hear uh, Pinkerton until a couple of years after release. I did hear the Green Album on essentially the day it was released. I have thoughts uh, that I'll share in a bit upon hearing both those albums for the first time. And now, uh, I I don't know what we want to call this long since, you know, pick your date, whether it's Pinkerton or whether it's the Green Album or maybe a little past then. This long stretch of Weezer albums, and there were uh, a, a number of these that I had never heard before uh, getting prepped for this episode. A few I've heard a handful of songs from. How to think about what Weezer has done since those beginning dual peaks of the Blue Album and Pinkerton is something we'll talk about later on in the program. I don't know how it harms the band's legacy. I don't know how, but this is, so this is one of the main reasons why we avoided it for so, avoided the band for so long, because how do you deal with a band whose peaks are clearly the first two albums released and then a dozen or so albums of varying quality with um, varying response from fans and critics alike? Well, Having come off a Willie Nelson episode in which we skipped large swaths of this man's career in the 80s for both time purposes and for quality purposes, I felt the time was probably right to tackle a band that I really do love but have very mixed feelings about moving forward into the into the 2000s, essentially. But much, much more on that to come. Uh, Jeff, your I thoughts. Think I, I think I feel the way about Weezer uh, 
the way an earlier generation of rock or music fans must have felt about Rod Stewart, uh, watching him have this incredible talent and potential and then sort of just sell it out uh, for mediocrity. I mean, I guess in Rod's case, it was true commercial megastardom. In Weezer's case, it was just a career um, because the, the parameters of the music industry have changed since then. But, you know, in the same way that Rod Stewart had these incredibly fresh and exciting, and it's kind of a new sound, a new, a new idea uh, uh, in his early 70s music, and then sort of became, you know, purveyor of schmaltz on the radio. So, too, did Weezer on those first two albums. And I remember them. I remember as a kid growing up with them and, and really, like, rooting for this band and wanting them to be something, I guess, that ultimately they were not. And maybe never were going to be. I don't know about this. But the more that I, I kind of learn about Weezer since those days, I, I, I stopped paying attention to them as a going concern somewhere around Maladroit. I didn't really become aware of them until college. I mean, I knew about the Blue Album because I knew Buddy Holly, just like Scott did. And I saw it on MTV, and it was impossible to avoid. But I thought it was just kind of a little bit sing-songy, and I was well into my Beatles snobbery phase where I was all classic rock all the time. I discovered it really along with Pinkerton the same way everyone else discovered Pinkerton, which was two and a half years after Pinkerton was <laughs> released, you know, long after it was too late um, in 1998 or nine, you know, and people were like, hey, did you realize that Ben Weezer actually put out a really great second album? Yeah. And then Rivers Cuomo went to Harvard and like in like you know, we were at Johns Hopkins. So I guess there might have even been some sort of like a status envy there going on as well. It was hilarious. No, albums and i thought wow this band's really interesting they're really going places i was getting in a pavement at the same time I, I thought i saw similarities between them you know and uh then when that green album came out uh, i was really really rooting for it and i was excited and i was just disappointed maladroit more of the same and then i stopped paying attention and of course now they've had this career ever since then and i guess what i think you need to understand is that if you realize that rivers cuomo's musical idol was kiss all that kiss entails the whole package of kiss then you have the skeleton key to understanding weezer's career and rivers cuomo's drives the fact that this guy he was like a really nerdy kid with a deformed leg growing up in an era where you know disguising yourself in face paint is no longer the acceptable way to rock out kind of governed all of the rest of his choices and i think it clearly deceived the band's early fans people like me into thinking that he, he was something that he's not which is like that you know the nerd comfortable in his bed sit room nerdiness the way all of us are you know he wanted to kind of be honest he wanted to live the rock lifestyle 
style, you know, get with the groupies, do drugs, remain in the charts, crank out albums, tour, do the whole thing. He, he grew up dreaming of living the rock dream, and he kind of almost obsessively compulsively, as we're going to discover throughout his career, devoted himself to make it happen. Um, and that means, you know, for him and, and for his music, it's always going to end up being, quote, about the kids, man. You know, as best, you know, we talk about why does, does he have a sense of arrested development with his music? Well, I think it's because he's always trying to hit that demo. Uh, I remember my wife pointed out that he just appeared on Conan O'Brien recently on his podcast. And he, he literally said, he's like, listen, our tar- target demographic is 10-year-olds. I mean, he said that. You know, he's very self-aware about these things. Uh, but that kind of illustrates the shift between what Weezer has become as a careerist band and what Weezer initially started out as in those first two albums, uh, which everyone agrees. And I think, they're, 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 by the way, there's a lot more to them than just those first two albums. But it just becomes so scattershot. It becomes almost like a, this weird, almost uh, strange exercise in Weezer beginning to impersonate a rock band less than actually be one, self-consciously so. Uh, this is going to be a very strange and fun episode. Who wants to start with the backstory? Scott, you want to cue us up with who these guys were? <laughs> Although this is one of those bands where there's, you know, there's not an extreme level of backstory before this this debut album <clears throat> arrives. Uh, well, Cuomo's is, you know, you, his parents were like yogis in an ashram or something like that. Yeah, and they dro- they drop out of like, you, so we're talking like the, the hippie lifestyle kind of a thing. Yeah, you they, know, they, they drop out. Yeah, they they were in Connecticut. Uh, he was in Connecticut growing up. Um, played at, a, at a, like a metal band in high school, which, as Jeff mentioned, Kiss being sort of the lodestar makes a lot of sense. Uh, Patrick Wilson, who's the drummer for Weezer, is the longest-termed member and um, and and met around 1990 or so. Wilson's friend was Matt Sharp, who would find his way into the band as well, and moved out to, uh, to California recorded a bunch of, uh, of demos trying to find a record deal. Uh, Jason, I was going to say Steve, uh, Jason Cropper was the uh, original guitarist along with those those three guys. He was replaced during the making of the Blue Album but was involved in a little bit of the songwriting. I uh, got at least one songwriting credit on the Blue Album before he was kicked out during the recording. And uh, their first show was 92. They think we're opening or playing on the same bill as Keanu Reeves, his band Dog Star, which... Uh, I don't know a lot from Dogs Dogster. I can't tell you they're going to be a, ever a, 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 a band featured here on Political Beats, um, and essentially gave themselves a year to get a record deal. Uh, this was 1992. They said, "If we don't have a record deal in a year," uh, River said, "I'm going to school. I'm going to Berkeley, and uh, I'm going to go to college." So Geffen gave him a deal, June 1993. 
and thus begins the recording and the production on their debut Blue album, which is released in 1994. This is the one that was stuck in a CD player in Noah's car for the better part of a few years, so perhaps we allow him to introduce us to and give us some of the finer points on this debut album from Weezer. Absolutely. So the Blue album, I mean, it's kind of remarkable that this was their biggest album to date. Um, and they released it when they were, I think, not even 20. Um, you know, it, and it just, every track, every track slaps. Um, every track, there's not a dud on it. There's no weak moment even um, from beginning to end. I mean, it produced, you know, three or four high-charting singles that are still played on the radio today. Um, Say It Ain't So, Buddy Holly, uh, The Sweater Song, My Name Is Jonas. You know, you still hear those. Now they're on classic rock. But um, for, you know, for a long time, they were on alternative or even pop rock. Um, but every track is amazing. I mean, In the Garage is this amazing insight into, you know, River's sort of nerdy upbringing where he only felt safe in his garage, surrounded by comic books and film posters. And he talks about his posters. Well, sided of... dice, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, right. I remember that well. Right, right. His 12-sided dice, his posters of um, Peter Chris and Ace Freely, you know, the Kiss, uh, the Kiss tribute comes in early. Um, and, you know, this was him. This was his life. He's in the garage. He only feels safe when he's surrounded by his, you know, his pop culture um, and nerdy uh, apparel. I've got posters on the wall. My favorite rock group kiss. I've got this freely. I've got Peter Chris waiting there for me. Yes, I do. But the rest of it is, it, it closes out with Only in Dreams, which is like this nine-minute song um, that sort of builds in waves. Um, most people think it's about a girl or about, you know, like a wet dream or something, but it's actually about his songwriting process where um, he says most people misunderstand it, which, again, is a common theme of his meaning being misunderstood by people. Um, but he writes about Only in Dreams. Um, I see what it means. Reach out and reach out and touch. Uh, basically, he's talking about like the songs only come to him in dreams, and only there can he like see his his music coming to life. Um, but so the blue album fuses, you know, it, uh, some like Nirvana like instrumentation, um, some Pixies like dynamics. You know, the quiet to loud, um, like one of you guys pointed out earlier. Um, some pavement influence. Um, it was you know came out in. Uh, early 90s so it was surrounded by that alt rock um ferment but it also had a much poppier sound which is one of the reasons it broke through you know it was it borrowed as much from kiss and the cars as it did from uh you know nirvana uh, and actually rick okasek the front man for the cars produced the album which is one of the reasons it has you know this uh fantastic production you know a little bit glossy a little bit crunchy uh but it just pops out of your stereo as i learned many times 
So for this to be produced when they were so young is incredible. Um, but it, I think the one thing that people misunderstand sometimes is that, uh, you know, they weren't just trying for authenticity on this album and Pinkerton and then giving it up later. There were, the pop elements were there from the start. I mean, they set out to write some pop songs. Um, Rivers actually didn't even want to include Buddy Holly on there initially because he didn't think people would understand it or, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do well as a single. And Rick, the producer, had to start leaving out notes around the, st- around the studio saying, give us Buddy Holly. The people want Buddy Holly to convince him to put it on the album. And obviously it, it took off. Um, but from the start, they were, you know, trying to be poppy. They were trying to uh, succeed. You know, Rivers wanted uh, fans to be up and dancing at his shows. Um, and so I think the album succeeds on every front. I mean, musical, lyrical, it you know, gets the people going, but it's also, uh, it is authentic. I mean, he writes about his own experiences in the garage. Um, he's true to himself. There's some confessional elements. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a tight, I think, 10-track album. There's no, there's no filler on it, which is, uh, as we'll see, is not always the case in their trajectory. I think it's actually, a, this is an album for me that I associated with another one-hit wonder I remember at the time that would go on to just amount to absolutely nothing. Um, the stupid song that you'd always see on MTV, same kind of self-loathing, nerdy crap. What was it called? I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. You know, what the hell am I doing here by Radiohead? Those guys are never going to amount to anything, right? <laughs> and they just, just, in fact, they have similarly disappeared. And the irony <laughs> is that, you know, they disappeared for quite some time. I mean, the Benz didn't make a huge impact in America. It was OK Computer that brought them back to the attention of most Americans. Uh, uh, the funny thing is, is that if you go back to Pablo Honey, that's not a really great album. Uh, whereas Weezer's Blue album is one of the best debut albums, I think, of all time. And I'm finally saying this after having been at least somewhat familiar with it for years, but really have not gone back to listen to it all the way through and reappreciate it. You know, geez, you know, I guess basically when we booked this show, it was the first time in decades. Um, I'm kind of stunned at how there isn't a single week moment on it. There isn't a single week song on it. And I think one of the key reference points for this band, even the one that I remember back in the day uh, uh, that you uh, didn't mention is Cheap Trick. And you guys may have noticed the other week I was doing a big Cheap Trick tweet storm. Well, the reason I was is that I was listening to Weezer, and I thought to myself, man, well, now suddenly I need to go listen to a lot of early Cheap Trick because it puts me so much in the mind of like those first two or three albums of theirs. This Blue album, just perfect, tight pop hooks, every melodic line in place. I could break it down song by song, but I just wanted to get that point in before Scott starts. Uh, just This is actually secretly in a very underrated way, one of the finest debut albums ever.
it made our list on the best debut album. Not uh, mine, though. Exodus. It made yours. No, it made mine. Well, yeah, I, I, I knew what I was talking about. And I just sort of glossed over it. I was like, whatever, Scott. You know, sure, you, you and your Weezer. And you were right. It's a great debut, and it cut through the grunginess that was happening around that time. Uh, there, there's no doubt that Rivers was influenced by Nirvana. There's a story of him hearing uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit as he was working at a fast food restaurant and, and saying, I think, to to Pat Wilson, I should have written that song. And Pat thinking, yeah, you know, you, you could write that song because already his songwriting prowess was very evident early on and very influenced by uh, Pixies as well in a lot of ways. Uh, the guitar sound and, and some of the uh, soft, loud dynamics, as, as Noah already mentioned. But in a way, it was different because it was pulling from that line of, of cheap trick uh, power pop songs. It was helped immensely immensely by Rick Ocasek and his production on this Blue Album because Rick Ocasek and the Cars realized, because Rick was already, what, 30-something by the time the Cars figured things out, you can be a little weird and you can be a little new wave, but in the end, what, what pops through on the radio and what people remember are those massive hooks and what people remember is the way that those songs explode out of the radio. And that is what almost every track on the Blue Album does. Uh, the way My Name is Jonas begins the album with that, you know, just guitar uh, figure. Well, no, it's, it's, it's the loud, soft, soft loud, right? So it's the very yeah. nice jangly acoustic. And then, and then wall, right. brick wall, thong, bom, 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 that. That's what it does. Yeah, and, and, but the way that that, that that drum and the rhythm section hit for the first time in that song make a lot of sense. My name is Jonas. Songs later on, like uh, like Surf Wax America, which is one of my favorite songs. Here, I think we excerpted that during the best debut album episode. Um, no one in the band surfed, but then again, no one of the Beach Boys except for Dennis surfed either. It's this well, that's winking... the joke, though. That right. makes it a meta joke, right? That's they're, they're paying tribute to those goofy songs like Jan and Dean. You can take your car, I'll take my board. You know, <laughs> like I'm going to surf the highway. It's yep. so goofy. But listen to that guitar on Surf Wax America. It's you know Johnny Ramone filtered through the Pixies. It's just a brilliant uh, piece of of guitar playing. And again, they do this, not to say often, but, but numerous times where they will slow that pace down to a plod, to nothing, before resurrecting it and bringing it back at the end. And that's what they do on Surf Wax America. Uh, on both of these first two albums, I can't say enough about what, what Patrick Wilson does on the drums. Um, he's, he's a really great player, but is unafraid to simply serve the song. There are a number of songs... Um, about Buddy Holly's one, Undone here on Blue Album is one, where the drums couldn't be more simple. It's a simple, you know, kick snare, kick.
kick snare, kick snare, kick snare, uh, until his services are needed. And then he's able to find those really nice fills and ways to move the song forward. That's a big part of what happens on this album, too. Say It Ain't So, I mentioned earlier, that's the song that sold Weezer to me as being something more than just a, a really cool MTV video for Buddy Holly. And Say It Ain't So succeeds uh, despite a number of things that you wouldn't... Well, for me, I'm not the I'm not the biggest reggae fan of the I'll world. tell you, it's, it succeeds despite sounding a heck of a lot like Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay, so there's that. So I don't like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And Nor I. There, this there's is a, a better version. Right, there's an that. echo there. It has sort of that reggae-tinged sort of sort of beat to it, especially on the guitar. I'm not the biggest reggae fan in the world. And these lyrics are the first indication, one of the first indications that you're not just dealing with a sunny, <laughs> uh, you know, beach, uh, fun-time band. It's a song about, you know, alcoholism and how alcoholism lives through generations. Uh, you know, like father, stepfather, the son is drowning in the flood. Um, he's, you know, you see that he sees the beer in the refrigerator. It reminds him of, of, uh, of his, his, his father who left and will the stepfather go down the same path and will he go down the same path of, of alcoholism. It's so raw, you know, the song that the way that, again, it explodes after that the guitar solo, the massive drum roll from, from Wilson to, to lead us into that part. And again, in this song, that's sort of a, a, a song about a cycle of alcoholism. You begin and end. Say it ain't so with the exact same uh, guitar part, which, as Jeff mentioned, and, and, does somewhat and, and, echo under the bridge. Like father, stepfather, the sun is drowning in the flood. Yeah, 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 yeah.
the irony is that just as you you girls would slow dance to Under the Bridge, a song about heroin addiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So too would they do it to this song about yeah about alcoholism. Absolutely. No one ever listens to the words, man. And now no, nobody it, pays attention. That's right. And if they did listen to the words on a song like No One Else some of the darker corners of Pinkerton might not have been such a surprise. I mean, no one right. else. Oh, that's such a brilliant song. Uh, yeah, okay, go for it. No, don't uh, talk about it. No yes. one else first. Is it, I, what, I, what I want to try to avoid in some places here, especially early on, is, is an over-analysis of the lyrical content, because especially on Pinkerton, there, there's a lot to talk about, without talking about how brilliant the, the songwriting is and the melodies are. No one else is this fuzzy pop-punk sort of brilliant song with these chord changes that are that are just brilliant but you know lyrically it's about a guy you know sort of realizing what a control freak he is and how his girl responds to it my girl's got eyeballs in the back of her head uh she looks around and around it makes me so sad to see her like that or uh, what's, I think the, my, my girl's got a big mouth, which which she babbles a uh, uh, babbles a lot, blabbers a lot. Uh, she laughs at uh, near everything, whether it's funny or not. How the relationship is affected, impacted by his sort of obsessive, compulsive behaviors toward the woman in his life. How the narrator, how Rivers interacts with women, uh, women he knows or doesn't know or fantasizes about, is. Uh, going to take a big step into the spotlight very soon but early on on the blue album on no one else it's very apparent that we're dealing with a guy who is um trying to figure out how to have these human interactions um he, he doesn't know quite understand who it was he wanted to be yet exactly either if you go back and look at the pre um blue album like photos of the band it's kind of a shock to find out that just like billy corgan back in the day rivers cuomo had like 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 really long hair like you know hair metal style which makes sense because he's living in la growing up in that era in, in southern california so he had like the hair metal hair like all the other kids did back then and then, of course, he cuts it off and he kind of leans heavy into, like, you know, the, the, the hardcore nerdiness, you know, putting on his glasses. The front cover of that album is, is such a, an intentional statement of, like, we are not rock stars. We, we are the guys who play Dungeons and Dragons in the basement of the science building. They look like the nerdiest people on the planet. They look like literally the people on your quiz bowl team. What's with his
that idea of like sort of forcing yourself to fit an image and maybe it's not an image you're comfortable with or one that you want to get tagged with kind of inevitably brings me to the song that we've kind of avoided discussing, which is Buddy Holly. And before I get to it, I just wanted to ask Noah, what are your thoughts on what was the single most famous song that Weezer is ever going to record? Um, that's a that's a tough question. I you might not like the answer. It might be Beverly Hills. <laughs> um, and oh, you know, well, but well, I mean, well, the, okay, but I mean, so but but what do you think about Buddy Holly? Yeah, but Buddy Holly, I mean, Buddy Holly might be might be number one. It's got to be. Um, for the early material, for sure, number one. Um, it probably did the best uh, charts-wise. I mean, that was that's the top one. The music video really helped. I mean, it got a ton of MTV plays. It still gets a lot of watches, you know, watches on YouTube. Uh, it burst through then. It's uh, probably the most fun from this album. I mean, there's no real, um, or at least until you dig into it, there's no real dark undercurrent. You know, it's just fun. It's a pop culture thing. Talking about Buddy Holly, Buddy Holly and Mary Tyler Moore and. Nobody really knows what it's about, but we know that it has a fun chorus that's a lot of fun to sing along to. Um, I think that's how most people probably first met the band, through Buddy Holly, through that music video. I processed it as an attack on me when I first heard it, and that's the, the truth. And it's interesting because, you know, you, you're a little younger than, than both of us, but but we grew up with this on the radio. And when I, hit, when I first heard that song, I actually... I'll be honest, folks. I looked a lot like, well, yeah, Buddy Holly. I mean, it was, it was a, a glasses-wearing dork when I was in high school. All right? And when I saw that, I actually thought that these people were insulting me. I didn't know how to – you have to understand, with no prior context, that Buddy Holly video, I wasn't sure whether this was a put-on and these people were insulting me or they were in on the joke or it was self-deprecating. I wasn't sure how to interpret it. The whole thing kind of threw me off. And I think maybe one of the reasons why Rivers Cuomo to this day is still really uncomfortable with that video is because it pigeonholed him as well. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, now you're our nerd avatar. And he's like, but wait, I want to be, you know, I want to be Ace Freely. <laughs> I want yeah. I, I want to sleep with the groupies. I, I don't want to be, you know, you know, your nerd Jonas who sits in a room and writes, you know, sad acoustic guitar songs. Um, and yet. The song itself is undeniable. The guitar playing on Buddy Holly, that little guitar fellow where, you know, the, you have the little dueling vocals, you know, right. and then the guitar like just shines through. And I don't know if that's like a Rick Ocasek production sheen moment there special from him or if that was, you know, Cuomo's idea all along. But yeah, to me, it's like one of the finest moments of their career. And again, it's one of the most famous ones as well.
And I mean, the opening lines are classic, and it kind of forecasts what's to come. But what's with these <laughs> homies dissing my girl? Why do they got a front? I mean, from the start, you know, there's already some irony in there. Well, exactly. Yeah. Seven layers of irony. It's like the joke from The Simpsons, like, you know, at Lollapalooza, where, like, they're like the slacker kids are like, are we being ironic? And the other one's like, I don't even know anymore, <laughs> man. Right. Like, they, I, I'm not even sure where the, the fun house ends here in terms of all the mirrors I'm looking through. I don't think Rivers does either. Listen, a couple of things I also want to point out about this, and some things are actually more apparent to me now going back than they were at the time. I, I, my wife, my wife, who is brilliant and will, of course, always be referred to as such on this show, uh, pointed out when I was playing this music around the house recently uh, that Undone, which was always her favorite song growing up, the sweater song, she says, you know what, that sounds a heck of a lot like a pavement song. And I got angry because I'd already written down on my notes, quote, sounds like a pavement song. Um, and it does. It sounds like, you know, something like one of those dope, haze, drugged out jams like Half a Canyon or, you know, Fillmore Jive or something like that. And the funny thing about this is that it's not a case of influence. Is that This predates all of that stuff from pavement. So maybe I, I don't think it's that they were uh, cribbing from one another so much as they were both drawing from the same well, which is like sluggish, dope-heavy 70s rock they both love. Oh, no. I'll just also point out that there are hidden tracks. You know, I think we've mentioned almost everything on this, but Holiday is one of my favorite songs on the record. Just golden choruses, beautiful hooks dripping off of it. And again, hides out at track number nine. The Blue Album, we spent a lot of time on, not just because, you know, it's 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 one of the albums that everybody agrees on, because it really is one of the greatest albums of all time. And now let's talk about one of the most tragic albums of all time. Because this is the moment where Weezer comes out with a fantastic follow-up that nobody, for reasons to this day that puzzle me, nobody recognized in the moment. That basically ended up altering the trajectory of the band forever, nearly tanking them all together, but altering them forever. What do we do about Pinkerton? Um, or are we are we just tired of this album? Are we tired of talking about it? Are we tired of sex?
never tire of Pinkerton. So I mentioned in the intro, I came to this album probably, uh, it was released in 96. I probably got it my freshman, sophomore year of college. So it was well after the initial reviews, well after the disappointing sales, well after all of that. And it it knocked me on my ass from the first time I heard it. I, and by that point, I had heard about, you know, the bad reviews and Rolling Stone readers. Just like it me. Third, it was just the same way I discovered it, right? Yeah, call, calling it the third worst album of 1996. And it peaked at number 19 and it didn't sell. And there were no, no you know, smash hit singles on it. And the first time I heard Pinkerton, I just could not help. I remember distinctly saying, these people are insane. These people are crazy. I don't know. I don't know how you can listen to Pinkerton and not appreciate it's brilliance. I just, I just don't. Now, w- we can talk about the lyrical content, but I don't think that's the main reason people were slogging on this album in 1996. I, I think they wanted what they perceived to be that sunshiny, good time, uh, Buddy Holly type song, and that just wasn't here on Pinkerton. But what Rivers gave you was this just unbelievably deep and interesting, and th- th- both lyrically and musically, a uh, picture of himself, his psyche, the things in music that he really loved, the type of songs that he wanted to play. I think Pinkerton is clearly Weezer's best album. I think it's better than the debut. I think it's one of the best albums of the decade. And I, I don't want to talk too much about it here because I, I'd like to hear Noah and probably Jeff talk a little about it first. But oh, I, probably I, me. I, I never, I never, never, I, I, I turn this album on all the time and I never tire of it. And I'll mention here at the top and I'll come back to it later. But this is one of the best sounding records that I own. I think the the production, the recording is incredible. And that's uh, Dave Fridman and Jack Joseph Puig, who did the engineering and recording. And the band themselves produced it. They figured out the finished product. This they took the best of what Rico Kasich had told them from the Blue Album, or at least taught them from the Blue Album, which is your songs have to jump out of the speakers, and everything on Pinkerton just blows you away. It is, it is so, it is loud, it is raw, it is like Steve Albini like in its rawness. But this, I love I, in my notes Albini. Oh. I wrote down exactly. Yeah, there's no, there's no like sheen to this nothing, at all. And that's nothing. that's it's, why it failed. It's, it's thought. brutally raw, and I love it to death. thoughts on Pinkerton yeah Pinkerton I had a similar trajectory um you know I I fell in love with the blue album in high school I actually didn't really listen to Pinkerton until after I'd seen them that first time um I didn't really I you know I knew all the hardcore Weezer fans loved Pinkerton I listened to it like once didn't get it it was too raw um I was you know I I was used to the singles from like Green Album and Make Believe and stuff and Blue Album um and so I just didn't get it. it. Seemed weird. Uh, seemed dark. And so I listened to it once. 
kind of didn't think about it. And then I heard them play El Scorcho, which is pretty much the only one from that album that they still play, except for maybe The Good Life. And I heard every person in the in the crowd sing along to every single word. And they, they lost their minds. Um, and so I thought, hmm, maybe, you know, should go back to this. Um, so probably a year, two years after I really liked the Blue album, I went back to Pinkerton um, and then got it again. So, you know, I understand kind of why it wasn't taken well when it came out, but it is crazy to see now, you know, it's universal acclaim. It's on all these, you know, top 100 albums of all time um, that people just didn't get it when it came out. Um, I think the sound production threw people off, but, um, you know, towards, the, especially in the second half of the album, it's still really catchy. It's still melodic. You know, if you listen to The Good Life, that is a fun song. Uh, you know, it's, I, I want to get back. I want to get back. Um, I don't even know where I got off the track. I want to get back to the good life. You know, it's about dancing and having fun. Um, but of course, the rest of the songs are pretty depressing. You know, it's talk you know, being tired of having sex. Um, you know, why bother? No other one. It's a it's a dark album. Well, you I know, mean, he wrote it. even The Good Life, Noah, is very dark. The Good Life was written as Rivers was recovering from leg surgery. He was born with one leg longer than the other. And so they were lengthening a leg. And I've not had this done to myself. I understand it's insanely painful, and he was, you know, on painkillers, and so the good life is, you know, uh, can't even get around without an old man cane. It's it's him saying, man, I'm 20, whatever I am, 26, uh, dealing with this fame and trying to figure out how to manage it, and I'm also in this physical pain, too, and I've got to write an album. I just want to get back to, as you were pointing out, dancing, having a good time, sleeping with groupies. That was pretty good stuff. Let's get back yeah. to that good life. stands out even from the blue album which is a fantastic album but the blue album is a very very well crafted album a bespoke album if you will this thing is raw and unmediated and there's just weird pain and an, unap an, an unapologetic nature to a song like get you which is just oh. loud nasty hard rock thrash from the 70s i you just imagine rivers Cuomo was just i'm going to write the trashiest noise i can and that song murders. That song is just absolutely a, a slaying piece of hard rock. People think of Weezer as sort of like this generic kind of heavy stuff. Get You is wild. Well, and here's the yeah. thing. You know, he would spend years afterwards trying to chase down this kiss dream of being metal and Van Weezer and these little attempts to really be hard. He'd never be as hard as this. I never meant to do all that I've done to you. Say it's not too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get you, uh -huh. 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 Get you, uh -huh
The Good Life is a perfect example. He's been trying to rewrite that big, dumb rock jam for the past 25 years, right? He never did better on that song. And the difference is that song is raw. Yeah, I was thinking to myself last night as I was listening to it, it's like, well, why wasn't this a big single? And as I realized it's such a good song, the chorus is so powerful. And yet there are just so many unsanded edges on that thing, uh, which makes it feel like rock and roll. Which is what is the thing. It makes you feel like rock and roll, not product. It right. feels real and raw and unmediated. And yeah, it's just like this almost – the whole album has this, this very kind of stolen moment feeling. Of, why isn't there anything else that sounds quite like it? The good yeah. life. You know. That's where the, the background of this comes in. I mean you know, for those who aren't versed in the Weezer lore, you know, he, went to, he went to Harvard after – getting sick of touring around for the blue album so he went off to harvard but he, he was apparently like, by the way he apparently applied to harvard while he was like touring in boston <laughs> he, he like drove to cambridge and applied in the waiting room like wrote the essay out or handed it in or something like that which is by the way a really kind of convenient way to apply to college i have to right. say yeah and <laughs> exactly that's the most you know rivers thing ever is to just sort of apply to harvard on a whim while touring and to get in and you get it because you're a rock star, because, you know, prestige whores, right? Yeah. Right. He, I, he we, we were all a little bitter about that in college, man. This is something we talked about in our dorms. I'm not even kidding, man. It's very funny. Yeah, it's like Emma Watson going to uh, Cambridge or something. <laughs> or, or Natalie Portman going to Yale, that kind of a thing, right? Right, right. But he gets in, and then, you know, even worse for people stuck at lesser schools. He, he hates it. He's 25. <laughs> He's you know six years older than the rest of the freshmen. He hates it. He feels he's never been more alone. He's he's, like, no, he's walking around in a cane. You know, cane. He, it took him like thirteen months to recover from his leg surgery. Um, so he, he was alone. He was like in his dorm alone. He was like corresponding with this eighteen-year-old Japanese girl uh, who was a big fan, and uh, that was like his main human contact, which he writes about um, on across the sea. And it comes from a dark place, and like he pours that out onto the tracks. Um, which he you know he did a little bit of in Blue Album, but not really. And he never, never does again. I mean, after this album, you know, tanks, it gets it gets just crapped on by the media, by critics, and by fans. Like, you know, this is the tragedy. It's a fantastic album, but since people hated it when it came out, Rivers is just hurt. Like, I think he was scarred, and he never went back to that well again. He decided, I'm never putting myself forward like that again because I'm going to get hurt, which is why... On subsequent albums, uh, you know, the Green Album, it's pop. It is just pop. He's writing about going to a sunny island. There's no personal stories. There's no darkness. There's no pain. He just keeps it all inside. He says, never again. I'm not putting myself out there. I, I remember what happened with Pinkerton. Well, except except for his drug habits, like he starts naming songs after the drugs he's using when he writes them, like Hash right. Pipe for one, and was it Dope Nose for another on a right. later record, right? right. But you're right about him putting himself out there, and I don't understand why he felt so stung because there's something so pure about a, a lyric like Across the Sea. It's a, I remember, again, bringing back all of these these semi-embarrassing college memories for me, man. Wow. Like that love lyric where he says, I've got your letter, you've got my song. You know, that's a really sweet little observation. And then, of course, then it changes and it climaxes so beautifully before going back into that whole, why are you so far away from me? I can never touch you. Um, you know, that song, just like so many of the others on the record, just has all, all of the hooks of the Blue Album, but zero gloss. 
Jello, baby. You won't talk, won't look, won't think of me. I'm the epitome, a public enemy. Why you wanna go and do me like that? Come down on the street and dance with me. I'm a Radio was allergic to it. I mean, El Scorcho, which we haven't even really talked about that much, is this great kind of shit kicker riff. All right. It's just an ugly, angry, horny riff, which is perfect for that lie. You know, goddamn these half Japanese girls driving me insane. Um, but it, it, he would try to go back to this like rock out all the time vibe so many times throughout the rest of their career, but it never sounded as spontaneous as it does here. Even something like Pink Triangle, which is the opposite. It's a very bland and very carefully assembled almost pop song. You know, it, it doesn't have any of like the overproduction that you would normally associate with the later later stuff on their in their discography. A fun experiment is going back listening to the sweater song, Undone, and then El Scorcho. The riffs are almost the same. Yeah, right. Like, no, no, very much so. Yeah. Right. But it's just sort of plucked harder with less production and it's got the same quiet, loud, but those are just, you know, that's the difference between the Blue Weezer and the Pickerton Weezer. It's the same kind of song, but just way more heavy and angry. So, Scott, I've got to talk a little bit about the inherent strangeness and weirdness and creepiness that is across this album, too, and that's, you know, River's personality seeping through across the sea, which, I mean, Jeff described wonderfully. It is probably the best song on the album. Those lyrics... I understand people being really uncomfortable, um, you know, lusting for an 18-year-old Japanese fan across the sea. Um, sniff and lick your envelope. I wonder what uh, what clothes you wear to school. I wonder how you decorate decorate your room. There's sweetness in places, but there's real creepiness there too. And obsession, yet, like obsession, like a weird obsession. And, yeah. And yet, and yet, every chorus he comes back and tells us, "I could never touch you. I think it would be wrong." throughout Pinkerton of fantasy versus reality. And I think the people who really come down on the, on the creepiness side don't fully 
appreciate that, don't fully get that, like this this difference between what's fantasy and what's reality, um, even in the mind of our narrator. Pink Triangle, which is one of the songs I was referring to earlier, Jeff, when I said let's not forget the music here. Pink Triangle has yeah. one of the most melodic choruses of their career. Think about Geffen getting this turned into them and this wonderfully sweet song with xylophone and killer hooks and all sorts of wonderful chord changes. And what does it all lead to? It leads to, I'm dumb, she's a lesbian. Right? And then the title referencing Nazi patches for prisoners. Right? What does Geffen do with this? It's a beautifully beautiful song melodically. Lyrically, it's not a mess, but lyrically, how do you sell that? I'm dumb, she's a lesbian. But Pink Triangle is a beautiful song. It's a great, great song here. Again, it's about uh, you know lusting after a girl, not even having the 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 bravery uh, to go talk to her, and then just figuring, well, she's probably a lesbian anyway. It's never going to work because she likes she likes girls, right? It, that that reality never even happens. There's never a conversation there. to like well the last two songs of the album and here's where, where i get fantasy reality falling for you is where that is where that fantasy meets reality because falling for you has these very revealing lyrics and also a technical complexity with the chord and key changes all over that he'd never really come back to but it's uh it's about this real the realness the, the really falling for a girl uh and even in that first how many pop songs do you have that has, has the line, I've got a number of irrational fears that I'd like to share with you, right? That's a really weird way of saying I'm sort of scared about what I'm feeling in this relationship. And, you know, on The Good Life and elsewhere on the album, he's talking about how he wants to get back to sleeping with groupies and, and having fun and shaking booty. Falling for You says, just as I was busting loose, I got to uh, go turn in my rock star card and get fat and old with you. Like that sense of what again what is real versus what is reality um and that, that, i think it's in the last verse where he says like, i can't believe how bad i suck he was trying to play her cello um it's true i can't believe how bad i suck it's true what could you possibly see in little old little old three chord me it's that it's the first perhaps hint of humility on the entire album Like a little bit kinder And I do like you, yo 
Butterfly is the same way, in which it's very, Butterfly's very real. It's the opposite of Tired of Sex, which begins the album with this feedback and this, the, the, the ting, 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 and a cymbal, and then kablam, as the band enters in. And Butterfly is acoustic. It's a little bit of drum later on, but it's mostly Rivers and his acoustic guitar. And it's the opposite of Tired of Sex. It's, it's a, a, apologizing to someone because of, uh, of sort of using them. Um, uh, maybe I need this fantasy life of chasing butterflies he says in, in Butterfly. And at the very, very end, I ain't coming back. I'm sorry. The, la- the last words on this album, unless I'm mistaken, are repeated over and over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. And again, when you, go through, when you go through what is really you know this concept album about what Rivers was dealing with for a long, long time while trying to put together this follow-up album and going to Harvard and his weirdness around girls and relationships and groupies, what you end up at the end is him apologizing for all, for a lot of this stuff that he's been talking about and doing in the course of the album. I, 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 I don't dismiss complaints, I guess, about the way that Rivers talks about what he does and how he handles his relationships. But A, he's not alone <laughs> in the world of rock and roll. There are plenty of albums like this where you have this narrator who's this Lothario figure. Right. I mean, uh, 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 Afghan Wigs and, and Greg Dooley's made a career out of sort of this entire uh, this entire personality and not appreciating it for God, I hate to go so deep, but not appreciating it for the art that it is, not appreciating it for the cycle that you sort of go through when listening to all of Pinkerton. I think it's really missing the picture. And again, what I think is one of the best albums of the decade. I know Scott, Scott, I have no idea what you're talking about. This album is about Madame Butterfly. <laughs> That's right. Does I, anybody want to? I'm sorry. You were, you were going to say sorry, Noah. You're, oh yeah. There's this contingent on the internet, especially you know a lot of feminists. I was reading this essay from some Asian intersectional feminist last night who's really offended at this album. Uh, but if you think that we, that Rivers is creepy on here and that you know you need to tell him, like he already knows. Like he he's very self aware. He's you know more neurotic than anybody out there. Um, the whole album is about him being creepy and him hating himself for it. Uh, you don't need to tell him like he's he's not writing these and thinking, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds great. I'm a good guy. Like it's just dripping with self-loathing. Uh, he knows he's, you know, uh, it would be wrong to, you know, get in touch with this Japanese girl. Uh, he thinks he's creepy towards other women. Uh, he's very self-aware, probably too self-aware. I mean, he reminds me of Charlie Kaufman. Um, and there's that Spike Jones connection between them. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Adaptation, but it's... Oh, you know, yeah, no, who's... I was I was laughing. That's a really great uh, connection there. Yeah, continue. Yeah, just somebody who's so stuck in their own heads, like, they know they're a creep, they know that they're, you know, too anxious and in their head, but they spend their time with women thinking about how they're too in their head, uh, and it makes them come off as weird. You know, it's just this sort of cycle of self-loathing and self-violence. Um, that he really pours out here. So it's very self-aware. It's very deliberate. Um, I mean, on the good uh, life, Noah, uh, I'm a pig. The way he spits that out, I'm a pig, I'm a dog. Excuse me if I drool. He's aware. He knows. Screw this crap, I've had it. I ain't no Mr. Cool. I'm a pig, I'm a dog. Excuse me if I drool. I ain't gonna hurt nobody. Gonna cause a scene Just need to admit that I want sugar in my tea Hear me, hear me I want sugar in my tea And I don't wanna be an old man anymore Spinning you up to 
Sonic Sensibilities didn't like, you know, Pinkerton, well, that's fine because uh, Sensibilities back in 1996 hated it. Can anybody still, to this day, explain to me why this album was loathed? How could it be the third worst album of 96? Who Whose dog got kicked for this thing to get slated the way that it did? I understand that it didn't, you know, Scott, you mentioned, oh, yeah, it wasn't like the power pop that everyone was expecting. Um, but it just seems so inexplicable that it would actually have this sort of pile on. I don't. The pile on effect that you see, right. like on the internet, it's almost like a Twitter mobbing of some sort. You know what I mean? Yeah, before Twitter existed. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the, 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 the fact that the, the Rolling Stone, it was the Rolling Stone readers that voted at third worst album of the year, which sort of damn, they must to, have been angry. Well, I mean, it speaks to sort of this 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 rolling effect of people sort of you know seeing one bad review and believing it and sort of extrapolating it to being oh no, it's not just okay, it's the worst album of the year. But that right there, talk about this as we get to the Green album, had to hurt Rivers more than anything else. That that the fact that the fans the fans voted and said this sucked. That hurt him more than any was bad it, professional it, 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 review could have. It possibly. wasn't just the critics; it was the fans right. saying we hate you. And it, but but it didn't make a lot of sense to me, especially in the wake of. I mean, In Utero was a big hit for Nirvana and Heart Shaped Box and all apologies and these singles. There's not a there's not a massive jump from In Utero to Pinkerton in terms of sound production. Uh, you know, in Utero is a super dark album too, guys. I so I I, I don't. There know. were a lot of bands out there, and I remember reading these these sorts of stories, just thinking, say, in the '90s, saying, "Why aren't we allowed to be weird?" All right, Nirvana was allowed to be weird. Pavement's allowed to be weird. Why are we expected to always sell like you know fifty thousand, fifty million copies? Uh, and, and I feel like that's exactly what happened to Weezer. They they, they got hit by the truck. You know, by, by by taking that left turn, they almost became a cautionary tale in some ways. They took the, four years and, off after this. And this was only a year after Jagged Little Pill became, like, the biggest album of all time anywhere, which is not a fun, happy album. Right, but, but Jagged Little Pill is still so slick and poppy and all those hooks slam home and it's brick walled to within a oh, – yeah, it's – it is. You know, I actually listened to Jagged Little Pill not so long ago, and I, formally, it's a well-written record, right? right. But I it just it, it it holds nothing for me. There's nothing left for a record that I heard about, you know, four thousand times when I was a seventeen, sixteen, fifteen-year-old. It holds nothing left for me. This one still does, uh, and, and it's it's so strange that you know it, it basically. I, I always liken this to the the point uh, in their career where they got canceled, <laughs> you know, they essentially canceled by their fans. And I actually think that I also made this joke on Twitter that this is where it's worth pointing out that to me, Weezer is the family guy of rock groups. Okay. You know how people don't realize this these days, but those first two seasons of family guy were actually really good. All right. Really interesting. It was a new kind of a style of a, you know, animated comedy. I hadn't seen it before. Then they get canceled. Then, the fan act cry was like, wait, that show was really good, so they're brought back. <laughs> and they're okay for a while. And you're like just glad to have them around. And then before you realize it, you, you look up from your desk and you realize they're a sh- they're shambling zombie band. They're shambling zombies and you don't know how to kill them anymore. And this, of course, is exactly what happens to Weezer. They get yeah. essentially canceled. Rivers Cuomo, he, he, he doesn't even finish at Harvard. I think he, he, he drops out midway. 
Uh, he goes back to writing, but what is it, like a four-and-a-half-year layoff in 1996 to 2001 with their third record, The Green Album. And this is, of course, like the big dividing line in Weezer's career. Because although I really actually quite like these next few albums, or at least large amounts of them, uh, they're never quite the same afterwards. Who wants to take this up and explain? Actually, do you guys mind if we take like a three-minute break real quick? All right, I'll uh, I'll pick up the Green album. And Jeff mentioned this is a clear delineation. I mean, in, in the career, there there are one or two other points. I think later on where there are some stylistic shifts or or the focus shifts. But I mean, it's it's pre Green album and post Green album for 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 Weezer, and part of it can be, well, part of it can be explained from the backlash to Pinkerton. And I have a note here, which essentially is this is the this is the Weezer debate over what music, what the purpose of music is. Is the purpose of music art uh, or self-revelation or is the purpose of music to connect with a mass audience? And if you don't connect with a mass audience, there's no point. And from this point forward, Weezer essentially decides that the purpose of music is to connect with the audience. The audience was repelled uh, via the Rolling Stone Readers poll by Pinkerton. And they were 100%, at least Rivers was 100% committed to never, ever let that happen again. To create something so polarizing that a, a sizable portion of the Weezer fan base would ever turn their back again and say this is unacceptable to us. Now I want to point out, by the way, Scott, that this is not just something that we're inferring, you know, from yeah, well, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, we're not we're not guessing at this. He's been very upfront about it. He in fact he he, he almost it, it was he he went about it rather clinically and academically. He like during his time at Harvard and afterward he like would dissect like all classic rock songs to find out like well, how are they hits, the big hits? Like, it's the hook, the verse, the chorus, the verse. What are the themes? So we'd come up literally with, like, stock phrases like, ooh, love you, baby, want to rock so hard, stuff like that. And, like, you know, I would not quite throw them into a grab bag. You yeah. know, just have them almost like in a, an Excel spreadsheet. He's, he's, the, he, he's the Will Smith of music. Will Smith famously had the same thing for how he chose his scripts when he was becoming a movie star. He studied what films made, you know, $300 million and what were the themes and how did they make it work? And that's why for a large portion of his career, uh, Will Smith made pretty good decisions on what movies to make. Now, now, when we describe somebody doing this to the average Joe, I don't know. I am Maybe I'm projecting my own opinions onto that person. But I, I feel like they kind of get a vaguely creepy feeling about it. Uh -huh. That, that, that we, we expect art to just be like this sort of spontaneous and maybe quasi-mystical, unmediated creation. You know, if it isn't like elevated high Apollonian art, even if it's like, you know, like Dionysian, ooh, I want to get with you, get down right now, dance. You know, at least it's coming from the heart. You know, it, it, it's not a pure kind of, you know, like you know, almost robotically clinical imposture. And, and that's the thing I think that freaks a lot of people out about some of the remainder of Weezer's career is that it does feel a little bit like assembly by the numbers. Now, this is when he starts the spreadsheet, the infamous spreadsheet. He starts keeping track of uh, lyrics. You know, he'll write one line or you know, it, even a phrase. He'll put it in the spreadsheet. You know, he'll chart the number of syllables so that he can start plugging and playing into other songs. He starts recording riffs and uh, 
you know, verses that he can identify by their key so that he can start to assemble like a collage, start to put together almost mathematically, you know, the perfect pop song. It's like if Data decided to become Gene Simmons. <laughs> right. I, I, but here's the funny thing. It kind of works. I mean, this third album, I have to say, I actually really like the Green album. Yeah, I mean, everybody liked the Green album. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I remember at the, at the time, I remember Cunning got a lot of slack. Oh, it's not this big revelatory you know, thing. I remember it so well. I was like, it must have been a junior in college, something like a sophomore, junior. Um, and, you know, it wasn't, you know, these big, you know, confessional epics of like romance across the sea. I didn't actually understand a lot of the subtext of the Pinkerton songs until much later. Uh, I was just thinking about my own love life. <laughs> of them. This one was much lighter and I cut it some slack. But even coming back to it now, listen, people like to make fun of Hashpipe. That is one hell of a riff. I love big, dumb, stupid rock songs when they're successfully big and dumb and stupid. I also just also think that the back half of this album is secretly maybe the last time there's this sort of smarter, more wistful version of Weezer. I think of songs like Simple Pages and I think especially Glorious Day, which is a simple pop song, but it it, it covers those simple, wistful, soaring pop melodic memes that would disappear more and more uh, from Weezer's sort of bag of tricks moving forward because I guess maybe the algorithm didn't like it. I don't know if you guys agree with this, but I, I mean, Island in the Sun might be the perfect pop song. I mean, it's not yeah. the perfect rock song, but it is just, it's beautiful. You listen to it, you feel like you're on an island. It's got a little bit of the soft, loud, but a toned down version. Um, it has more in common with the Blue Album than people think. I mean, it's, you know, Spike Jones did the music video again. Um, I think Rick uh, Ocasek also direct, also produced the Green Album. Um, Island in the Sun is just a, con- it's, you know, largely a continuation of that. When you're on- Golden sea, you don't need no memory. Just a place to call your own. This 
he produced the Green Album because they didn't have a producer for the second album, really. They had like an engineer. And and they had to like beg to be able to record a third album. This is why we were all rooting for Weezer back then. Because, you know, Pinkerton had been such a failure that like basically they didn't even have the ability to put a third record out until it kind of got critically revived mm-hmm. when people realized they'd made a terrible mistake. And so they brought in Rick Ocasek sort of as a quality control assurance thing. And yeah, he he gives them a, a a really good sound on the record because he's Rick Ocasek. You know, he knows what he's doing. Scott, people really wanted to like the Green Album. It was Weezer's first album in years, and people had unfairly slagged Pinkerton. And in that, I think they made the mistake of doing it in the opposite direction for the Green Album. I, much like the first time I heard Pinkerton, I and I said, "How could everyone get this so wrong? It's it's clearly just a fantastic album." I heard the Green Album and thought, how could people get this so wrong? This is not great music. And, and, and re- uh, revising or reviewing it again, I, I think it's a fine album. It, it's fine. It's okay. Um, there's, a, there's an Italian phrase in the liner notes that translates into, let us return to old times and that will be progress. And this does more than that. This, goes, this is like a re- regression to pre-Blue Album type, almost songwriting. That soft loud, the soft loud dynamics that made uh, the Blue Album so interesting are gone here. I mean, the back half yeah. of this record could simply be one long song. You would I not couldn't need... name you a single song from the second half. Right, I, everything just blurs together. Now there are some great riffs that Jeff mentioned, and that actually will be improved upon on the next album. But something like Crab or Smile, there are things you pull out of here and say, well, you, you know, there are still nice riffs. There are still nice moments. But it's 28 minutes and probably more than half could have been just a song suite because there is no, uh, there's no difference song to song in terms of there's no, the dynamics are off on the record. It is all sugar all the time. We talked about this uh, in the ELO episode, uh, Out of the Blue. Really good album, but it is Too so sugar. sugary sweet. You know, if you have sugar all the time, it fails to make a difference at all. You're just used to it. And the Green Album is all sugar all the time, except for Island in the Sun, which Noah already mentioned. But everything else is cranked up to 10 on the, on the speed level, right? They're just flying through these songs. And I, 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 I like the Green Album far less than I think many people do. It's not to say there aren't some good moments. And I think compared to the rest of their career, clearly it's still sort of in that, as I said, good, fine, okay range. But I don't think it comes any, I know there's like, oh, the Green Album and the Blue Album are kind of the same. I don't think the Green Album comes anywhere near to replicating no. the, the genius of, of the Blue Album. Kick it on back, kick it on back, kick it on back to what you know. Give me some love, give me some love to go on the hard rock radio. When they play tunes, when they play tunes, when they play riffs to the hard rock beats. Give me some love, give me some love to go from the top with the old school meets. Can't you see? They probably weren't too sure about their your creative direction either after this long layoff because what they ended up doing for their next record is crowdsourcing it. 
Uh, th- you know, we already talked about how obsessed Rivers Cuomo seems to be with his audience and not losing track of it. Well, this is early Internet era. Hey, remember the early Internet? I sure do. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm so glad that it's all gone now. I have so many embarrassing receipts that have been lost to history. Starting in 1995. God, it was ugly. But uh, back in 2001, boy, he was actually hanging out on the Weezer fan forums. This is always a mistake for an artist. Never listen to your fans like this. And so he'd be posting like, yeah, we recorded this in the studio today. Tell me what you think. And saying like, taking advice. Like, you know, you should you know do the guitar solo a little differently. You know, choose this song, not that song. Of course, ultimately, he exercised final creative control. What you end up with is 2002's Maladroit. And this is the point where I just sort of, I didn't quit out. I didn't throw my CD down in disgust and walk away. I just said, eh, I don't know. They're going in a direction that doesn't seem to interest me that much. So you like this? Co- you like this less than, <clears throat> less than the Green Album? No, and that's the funny thing. Okay. Coming, okay. coming back to it now. I prefer this record significantly. It's rougher. It's a little bluesier, a little nastier. There's a little stupid weirdness on this that I like, you know, like space well, yes. rock and okay. burnt jam. And, and that, to me, gives it a lot more character. So we got to talk about this very quickly. And I know you have some kiss thoughts that maybe this will will, will uh, sort of fold into. This, I, I like Maladroit. Um, yeah, I do too. I mean, as I said, this one grew on. As, as I said in my notes, it's the only Weezer album that I can actually say other than Pinkerton, you know, it actually has aged well and it really improved over time. is the moment where essentially everything on the record from this point forward is merely filtered through a plus minus equation about how it's going to sound in concert. How will the live experience be for people who come to Weezer concerts with this flashing W in the background and flying V guitars and loudness and distortion what will the concert experience be versus what the studio experience is? And this is where that change takes place. There's some really good stuff on on, uh, on Maladroit. I think that first, the first, American Gigolo, Dope Nose, and uh, Keep Fishing, that's a great trio of songs. I like American Gigolo a lot. The, the way a lot! Time. I love the line where he says, if you hate this, I don't blame you. Because yeah. it feels like a commentary on the rest of their career. But you know, you know the escalating and then declining... Uh, Big, big, like metal esque riffs. I mean, yeah. that's fun. Sit down, quiet, everybody. We've got a long way to go. I told you once before that you better not stop the show.
then Dope Nose is, uh, someone had said, and I, I, it's like this big Joe Walsh 70s arena riff uh, over a bunch of Weezer stuff. And then Keep Fishing is a fun song. Wilson's drum roll entry and the call and response vocals. This is also a point at which uh, Patrick Wilson's contributions, which I think are so large on those first two albums, are sort of minimized. One in the in the songwriting and two in the mixing, which is going to come ah. in the next couple of albums. But Keep Fishing, Take Control, th- these primitive, dumb, simple rhythm section parts begin to show up on Maladroit too. And I think that's what sort of slows it down. Uh, it slows down its momentum toward the back half of the album. Take Control is like White Stripes-esque in its simplicity. Slashing guitar riffs, stupid, simple rhythm section. Um, I, see, I, I think that's going to come to embody the weakness of Weezer in the years to come. And it's got one good idea and not three, and that the one good idea usually isn't quite good enough. <laughs> if they had taken the first half of Green Album and then taken the first half of Maladroit, made that the second half, that would have been a great album. It would have. I mean, there's stuff on here like like Slob. That's a verse melody on that song. Mm-hmm. And it actually sometimes feels like it's building something far more energetic in that first verse than the sort of rock lope that we eventually get. Stuff like Burnt Jam, you know, Scott said, like, last time you can think of songs that this this was not meant to be played, you know, in, in bunch of a in front of a bunch of screaming teeners. You know, I, it's exactly the sort of music that I was hoping Weezer would get it more into, like the power pop version of Pavement Goofiness. That song might as well just be Blue Hawaiian from Bright in the Corners by Pavement. When you think of the goofy chords. Uh, or, or, or slave, for that matter, slave. You know, this is this is a, a song from 2002, and that sounds like you know a gin blossom song. It's so yeah, a it's wonderful. About eight- yeah, slave is a wonderful melody buried under all the stuff that they want you to see when they're playing on stage. Exactly, but you know it's. But still, that's a Gin Blossoms thing, and, and and we talked a lot on our show about how that first Gin Blossoms album, New Miserable Experience, is really secretly like hugely underrated. Yeah, you know, and and, and it has a, has a lot of virtues. I would have liked a lot more of that, but you you don't get a lot more of that from from here on. Let's talk about a tragedy. That tragedy is his name is Rick Rubin. 
Rick Rubin's done a lot of nice things for people. To be fair, you know, I really like you know his work in his early hip hop pioneering days. I really like the things he did with Johnny Cash and other country stars like Willie Nelson. I really hate it every time he works with rock musicians. <laughs> and 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 I think there's like no more quintessential Rick Rubin disaster album than Make Believe by Weezer, their follow-up to Maladroit from 2005. Uh, I, I just, I, I'm just going to recite the, the words I wrote in my notes, my summary. F this record and the horse it rode in on. Get Rick Rubin the hell away from everyone. I'm convinced he's a ghoul at this point. <laughs> uh, guys, want to elaborate on why I feel so strongly about this? Or do you disagree and think Make Believe is a secret masterpiece? Hungry nights once again. Now it's getting unbelievable. Cause I could not have it better. But I just can't get no play from the girls all around As they search the night for someone to hold on to I just pass through between i think like 80 percent of it is just steaming garbage the worst thing that they had ever recorded uh still to this point some of the worst stuff they've ever recorded but i do have a soft spot in my heart for a few of the songs i think tell me but beverly hills is not one of them beverly hills is a great song i no! will defend it to the no. death it's a no. great song it is it's so dumb it's like i mean That's what we yeah. live for here yeah it's it's dumb he learned you know the it starts off, it sounds like he's ripping off We Will Rock You. You know, he's yeah. writing a song about Hollywood. It's everything you don't want from a geek rock group, but it is great. It is so fun to hear live. It's fun to play live. Um, we played it live in college, and it was always it, it was always great. Scott, um, did you did you label a photograph of the Hindenburg explosion last well, yes, night? You had, you had, That's an outtake from the recording sessions. Yes, you, you had song. tweeted out a picture of the Hindenburg colorized. And I simply said, you know, caption Weezer recording Beverly Hills. Folks, <laughs> so what are your thoughts, Scott? Uh, I'm sorry, but you know, this is a very divisive song among all yeah. sorts of folks. No, I think it's terrible. I think <laughs> Beverly Hills is awful. I, I and uh, I, I, one of our it's Twitter the girl vocals in the background that kill me. Gimme, it's, the, it's those oh, girl gimme, vocals gimme. that kill me. Yeah. Now, I I sang that part when we played it. I sang the <laughs> Gimme Gimme. <laughs> I just, I, I literally want to stab a screwdriver into my ears. Where I come from isn't all that great. My automobile is a piece of crap. My fashion sense is a little whack, and my friends are just as screwy as me. I didn't go to boarding schools Preppy girls never looked at me Why should they? I ain't nobody Got nothing in my pocket And 
this is, by the way, we got to point out why are we why are we lamenting this song? It's track one on the album, and it was Weezer's first and I believe to date only number one hit single. It's so stupid. It that, that, in two thousand and five when the charts still mattered. The, I'll the, point out the half rap on the verses, the talk okay. box solo, the it's just the brain dead thud of the drums. Like there's like that is the most brain dead thud you could ever hear of someone miking a drum and hitting it. That is what Beverly Hills sounds like. Although I do have to say, someone had, had mentioned, is it the worst song ever recorded? And I had to amend myself, because it's not Beverly Hills. The worst song ever recorded is Hey Soul Sister by Train. That's, <laughs> that's the Mariana Trench of music. This is like five feet above the bottom of the Mariana Trench when it comes to you know rock groups making music. I believe um, it's somewhere later in their career, I, Weezer does something you once described as their train album, too. So yes, we're going to have fun we'll, with that. We'll get to that. We'll um, get to I that. don't... But you know what, the rest no, of the album. There's, yeah. Okay, there's one thing on here um, that I guess I'll say. I think this is such a pity, which is quite clearly, uh, you know, at Rick Ocasek Carr's yeah. uh, love note to him. It's more Carr, it's almost more Carr's than anything Ocasek produced d- 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 uh, directly for them. I think this is such pity is an okay song. What kind of future will we have? Will we ever find peace? Everybody thinks we're crazy. They're about to call the police. I don't want to be a junk. You think I'm a fascist pig? Right now everything is black. I don't think we'll ever get this. Pardon me is terrible. Um, perfect situation. Perfect situation just rips off simple pages from the Green Album. Uh, at least the first thirty seconds or so. It's 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 recycled uh, from three years ago, four years ago. Rick Rubin's production is terrible here. It does nothing to help any of these songs. Too sleek, too crisp, um, and you know nothing. Nothing can really save these songs from the sort of half-hearted effort of the band and the overproduced hand of Rick Rubin. It's not the worst album. It's, I can't believe I'm saying this. It's not the worst album they, that they would do in this era, but man, it's not good. Listen, if I squint, I can find some things I like on this record, actually. Pardon Me, I think, is a very nice song, okay? Uh, uh, wait, the, wait, the, wait, oh, wait, 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 because I wrote this down. Here are the lyrics from Pardon Me. I tried my best. I gave my all. Sometimes my best wasn't good enough, which is like a Hallmark ad. Well, um, the thing is, is, is Scott, it helps to be wired the way I am. I don't listen to the words in the first place. Yeah, I know. And so I listen only the to the music. For you. <laughs> well, well, but that's the thing. And the more time you spend with this stuff, the more repelled you'll be when you find out it literally has been assembled by... You remember that Family Guy episode of South Park where they find out that Family Guy episodes are assembled by seals <laughs> who, who, who like nudge beach balls into various buckets to like assemble the various random references? That's kind of the way Rivers Cuomo puts together songs, you know, you know after this era. Uh, so I, 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 I kind of like the music of that. I tried my best gave my all 
by the way, one of the other songs that they hated, the fans loathed and they hated it as a single, but I actually don't find that objectionable at all, is I like We Are All On Drugs. I, I I get the the image works for me. It's a bunch of idiot kids like running down like you know the the main strip, whether it's Lake Shore or rather Michigan Avenue, or like you know it's the Sunset Strip or it's you know in Vegas, and they're like we are so wasted, man. Um, but it's a good riff, and it's a again dumb dumb teenage fun. Which unfortunately is the way I'm going to be characterizing almost all the songs that I like from here on out. Arrested development issue. Perpetual uh, adolescence is what begins on this very next album and would remain for years. And that brings us to yet another album titled Weezer, our third <laughs> Weezer album. We, we, and by the way, we've got at least two more, three more, in fact. All right, this is the so-called Red Album. I like to refer to it as the Cowboy Hat Album. I will start off simply by praising that cover photo. Rivers Cuomo with a mustache and a cowboy hat looking at the stern manly man look on his face that's a funny photo man that's you know him doing irony right i just wish the rest of the album held up to this it's not bad this is what i'll say is like this is actually a decent record i don't dislike it i love troublemaker and pork and beans i think those are good everybody gets dangerous song about rivers cuomo's apparent tendency to like to like slide take his car zooming down a steep hill and then throw it into neutral pull the keys out of the car, toss them in the backseat and let the person in the back fumble for them, terrified, you know, afraid they're going to die because the car's in neutral. Uh, it has this beautiful middle eight section. Is that the, real? Yeah, it's a real, apparently it's what he used to do when he was like a reckless kid. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I knew some kids who did suicidally stupid stuff myself, so I wouldn't put it past them. What will we say when our kids come to us and ask with a smile on their face there in the middle of that song and it's just like one of those moments where you hear it and you think to yourself well whatever happened to this guy you know he's still around and almost every single one of these songs is at least inoffensive 
you know, and is is at least you know it's nice and it's pleasant while it's there in your ears. It's just not memorable. And then you get a song like "The Greatest Man That Ever Lived," variations on a shaker hymn, which is memorable, but for all the wrong reasons. Hey Noah, this is your favorite song I heard. This is one of them. I'll I'll be a contrarian again. I think this is a great song. I you think... love the spoken word bit at the end. <laughs> I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It's an Elvis tribute. Um, kind of works. Um, but the rest of it, I think, is great. I mean, it's their tribute. You know, part of it is just, you know, this is one of the last uh, authentic expressions that we get from Rivers um, for at least another eight years. You know, this is his tribute to the bands he loves. Um, kind of like Heart Songs. Uh, you know, he's that's an awful song. Heart Songs, <laughs> yeah, it was no, terrible. I don't like that song. Heart Songs is not a great one. Um, but uh, but this one, I mean, this one's a better tribute. He's imitating the artists he loves. Yeah, there's an Aerosmith section, there's a Nirvana section, there's a Green Day, there's the Andrews Sisters. Um, when you know that he loves the Andrews Sisters, things start to click into place. But it's their attempt at Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, and the lyrics are hilarious. I mean, obviously, if you take them at face value, it's a terrible song. Um, but if you, you know, if you see one layer pass, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, I won't even repeat the best line of it because this is a family friend, friendly program i'm assuming um but, we do use the bleep button so um if you listen to the first four lyrics you'll know what i'm talking about but um this is classic we classic rivers i mean he's clearly a an anxious self-loathing individual but he's putting on this face singing about how i'm the baddest of the bad i'm the best that you've ever had uh i'm the greatest man who ever lived um it's just fun i mean it's they're out there they're taking a risk i think it works um you know, I understand people who don't. It's it's certainly silly. part of it like part of its expectations like if you stop expecting or hoping for the blue album or pinkerton you can just kind of have fun and enjoy the ride um which at this point is in their discography is that's all i'm hoping for so scott do you want to talk about you know how much you love the red album or do you want to like discourse on the greatness that is ratitude i, I would much rather talk about how much i don't love the red album than begin talking about ratitude uh but there's weirdness happening on this album and uh rick rubin and jackknife lee are producing it so it has that sheen Apparently, the label told Rivers to go back and write some more commercial songs. So he came back with Troublemaker, and he came back with Pork and Beans. And the interesting thing about Pork and Beans, apparently some of those lyrics are actual things the execs told the band. Everyone likes to dance to a happy song with a catchy chorus and beat so they can sing along. Those are apparently things that were cribbed from the actual meeting between uh, Weezer and, and the record label. So that makes it a bit more interesting. Everyone likes to dance to a happy song. Chorus and beat so they can sing along. Hey, hey, hey. Timberland knows the way 
again, the perpetual question is, is he ironic or is he post-ironic or is he so ironic that he's sincere now? I just right. don't know anymore. The other thing that's interesting here is it is the Weezer version of Mardi Gras because on side two, you have every other member of Weezer take a turn singing lead yeah. on a couple of really terrible songs. Uh, <laughs> Thought I Knew, Brian Bell sings, not a great song. Cold Dark World, Scott Schreiner sings. Weird and creepy cosplay as a stalker, uh, not good. <laughs> Pat Wilson's song is all right. Um, but it's 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 just weird and unusual and in the middle of what ostensibly is still, you know, trying to sell records. Clearly they went back and rewrote some songs that label one of them to, to, to move product. It's just, it's a weird album. It, it, at least I think Noah mentioned this. It's at least them seemingly willing to take some chances. Um, there are long songs here too. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the multi 12 part mini suite, the greatest man ever lived is almost seven minutes, but there's two songs that are more than five minutes and, uh, dreamin', which I think is at least interestingly constructed and arranged dreamin' is that's more than five minutes. So in a way I say, at least I respect the fact that they're trying things on the red album and they don't all stick, but they're trying stuff. And, um, they should they should have stopped trying uh, at least when it comes to the next album. Well, I mean, I'm really glad glad that you're leaving this next album to me because this is really what I've been waiting to discuss for the entire show. This is this is really what the show's been building up to. In fact, uh, Weezer's you know I would say culmination of their career. Uh, I can only speak of 2009's Ratitude. Folks, take a look at the cover of this album. That. <laughs> That is a golden retriever chasing a frisbee, leaping off a couch, and you could almost hear like the Southern California toe-headed blonde, you know, nine-year-old kid with his fingers out and like the devil hook thing, saying "Ratitude, man!" And again, the layers of irony are so deep. I might, I'll just my first line of my notes is, "Of this, we must never speak." The cover has to be, I guess, what is it? A parody of every wholesome Saturday morning cartoon commercial consumption pre-adolescent teeny popper male cliche in the book. But here's the funny thing. It's such a dated image. That image comes from like the mid-80s or the early 90s. I grew up with that kind of a thing. I was there. But it doesn't come from 2008. So it's like a weird like, you know, kid appeal thing, but on an ironic level because it's frozen in amber. But if it's ironic, then why the f- does this music sound like it's aimed at 2018 teeny boppers? Because it is. Because because exactly it, it is. I mean, I mean, very, um, very directly and very purposefully. This uh, Ratitude and Hurley, I'm, I'm I'm grouping together in my mind. Yes. You can take them separately take if them you want. Both. Because they, they both deserve to be considered. Because together. these yes. are the these are the song. These are the albums with outside writers where they're. Little Wayne and Jermaine Dupree and the All-American Rejects and Dr. Luke, who works with Britney Spears and Miley Cyrus, writes on Ratitude. Uh, Hurley has Dan Wilson from Semi-Sonic, who wrote, uh, writes for Adele. Desmond Child, who wrote uh, the worst Aerosmith stuff that you know. Uh, Linda Perry from Four Non Blondes. Tony Canal from, um, uh, from No Doubt. Ryan Adams, who I think co-writes probably the best song on either of these two albums a song called of course Ru- because ryan adams has real talent right run away on 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 hurley
does sort of take it's it it is if Ryan Adams wrote a Weezer song. I mean that that, that that's exactly what it sounds like. And so there's uh, that's the best song on both of these albums. But there's a very deliberate attempt to write for um I well, what was I said last night? It is um they were trying their best to get alongside some 41 on the Shed Tour. Uh, the Canadian pop punk Avril Lavigne sound that's the sound of Ratitude and a lot of Hurley. And, um, and the boy, funny thing like is, is that Scott wrote this in response to me saying, like, you know, every time I can say to myself, a Weezer song sounds a lot like a Green Day song, I know it's a Weezer song I'm not going to like. Yeah. And he says, no, 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 I set my bar far lower than that, <laughs> my friend. That's right. Green Day actually has some quality, buddy. No, 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 no. Some 41. Some that's 41. what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah. All right. Any thoughts? Are we, no, are we, on the, are we wrong, these, Noah? The, the, the peak, the peak of Weezer's career, the Hurley Oof. era, the Ratitude Hurley Oof. era, Hurley era. I got to point this out, folks. This is an album that is named after that <laughs> fat guy on Lost. It has his picture on the cover. His picture is on the cover, and it came out after Lost ended. Remember, after that ending, where everyone was like, "What the hell is this show actually supposed to have been about?" This is like putting a picture of Daenerys Targaryen on your album right after the conclusion of Game of Thrones, when everyone on Twitter is talking about, "Man, that sucked." <laughs> this is where Weezer was in two thousand nine, two thousand and ten. The album Hurley—it's just like a random bloot into the into the ether. Yeah, Noah, your thoughts on on this weird, yeah, you know, this 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 whole weird Twilight era, basically in general. This is such a brutal era. I mean, I think between these two albums, there's one good song. I think, and and again, maybe I'm the contrarian here. I think if you're wondering if I want you to, I want you. Yeah, to. That was the one I would say is the one good song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I it's like a it. great. It's a great too. song. It's almost worse because it baits you when you start listening to Ratitude. You think, oh, okay, this could be. Starts good. off well. Hey, this could be a good album despite the cover. The rest of the summer the best we ever had we again it didn't make us sad i took you to best buy you took me home to meet your mom and dad your mom cooked me though even though i don't eat meat i dug you so much i took some for the team your dad was silent his eyes are fixed to what was on tv Then you get hit with I'm Your Daddy, The Girl Got Hot, and Can't Stop Partying featuring Oh, the rap interlude and Can't Stop Partying. That's the moment where I actually said to myself, I am going to, when I'm done with this episode, I am putting on a flood of pavement that will clean my ears like Hercules laboring to clean the Augean stables by rerouting a river through it. When that rap interlude and Can't Stop People, you gotta hear it. Party like tomorrow is my funeral. Gotta stop mixing alcohol with pharmaceuticals. And the unusual is the fucking usual. Man, my life is beautiful. And my girls are mutual. Okay, bitches, Weezer and it's Weezy. Upside down MTV. Please don't shoot me down because I'm an endangered species. It's the day to our lives with my night just started. I pray the killer does. 
It's, it's really remarkable. I don't think I've ever actually finished either of these albums. I just, I couldn't do it to myself. Um, but I was going back through these, and it's so funny. We were talking about how how wrong people can get some of these albums. Uh, Pitchfork, or no, All, all Music, uh, one of these like writing websites, somehow they rated Make Believe four out of five. Um, <laughs> and they and for Ratitude, they gave it a positive review saying, um, I'm your daddy and the girl got hot are sparkling with creative enthusiasm as anything the band has done since Buddy Holly. Like, I don't know how these people have jobs. Definitely I I, no patch on El Scorcho. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, but like, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty hardcore Weezer fan. I, I stick up for some of their songs and stick up for Beverly Hills, but these are just, I mean, it's just trash. Like I think, I think the great irony and tragedy is that Rivers Cuomo, when he's most miserable, makes his best music. Rivers Cuomo, when he's happiest, makes his worst music. I mean, I think these came out after he got married. And he's like, he's finally settled down. He's living a nice little life. He's, you know, a multimillionaire in California. Things are going great. He sells out tours. He has, you know, um, top charting albums. He's a very happy guy. And so he's making terrible music. I mean, that, I think that's common for a lot of artists. But, like, if he's happy, then things are bad on the music front. Like, you almost make him want to get another leg surgery. So yeah, you're suggesting that we should bankrupt him, seduce his wife, and then you know post you know, like graphic photographs of his private parts on the internet, and, and we'll get we'll get Pinkerton Part Two. Actually. I'm not saying we should do that, but I would listen to that album. I would, it would probably be pretty good, and you know, actually, I think there are people who would argue that the, coming up after this is like one of the last few Weezer albums that you really ought to listen to. I'm not referring to Death to False Metal, which is their weird kind of semi-outtakes album. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on it. I listened to it a couple of times only for the show and really nothing on it jumped out at me. But then again, maybe I'm I'm not Weezering hard enough. Do you guys have any thoughts on this before we go to everything? We'll be all right. The title was the best part of it. Yeah, that it is a good title. Or well, the cover too, with it's kind of almost a socialist realist kind of a, a painting. I, I, very kitschy. Um, but then you have everything will be all right in the end, which you actually know what pointed out to us. Like, don't sleep on this one. This is actually far better than anything they've done in years. And I guess I have to agree with you. And maybe even they agree with you too, because they actually write a song about how we've kind of you know we kind of sucked recently. So we're trying to not suck as much anymore, and they called it Back to the Shack. Yeah, Back to the Shack is their sort of apology to their fans. They talk about how, uh, you know, we forgot, we tried, went out and tried to get a new audience. We forgot that disco sucked. Um, you know, it's, it's bringing back the, um, the strat, bringing back the rock, basically, going back to the basics. I think it's a, it's a really solid album. I mean, it's, you know, it, again, it's not what the, the fans will always pine for, you know, the blue album in Pinkerton, and they're never going to get that. But this is the, I would say the only consistently strong album since either Green Album or Pinkerton. Uh, I'd say it's for sure top five. Sorry guys, I didn't realize that I needed you so much. I thought I'd get a new audience. I forgot that disco sucks. I ended up with nobody and I started feeling dumb. Guitar and 
earlier about not knowing when Rivers is kidding around and getting on the square and what is he by this point I have absolutely zero idea I don't know if uh, back to the Shaq's a fine song I'm just saying I don't really know if it's a honest apology or he's or doing it's a mock apology, he's, he's yeah. doing what he wants he, right. he he's doing what he wants um which uh he's happy doing and he's still connecting you know he's not alienating wide swap this, uh, of audience like he did with Pinkerton so on that level he's doing fine and you know he, he's doing what he wants. So I don't know if that's a real apology or a mock apology or an apology to make people think that he's actually... I don't know. It doesn't even matter at this point, except to say that everything will be all right in the end is probably the only late period Weezer album you need to hear. Probably is the only one. Rick Ocasek is back manning the, the, the knobs, so to speak. He produces, and he should get like 90% credit for this album. He reminded the band that Pat Wilson's drums do not have to be the lowest thing in the mix. It's okay to have them more prominent. So again, he sounds much better th than he has in years. There's a thickness to this album, not a loudness to this album, but a thickness to this album that improves a lot of stuff all over the place. I think that uh, the British are coming, which is this weird conceit about exactly what you think it is based on the title. It's really well done. You can tell they spent time figuring out what the arrangement should be, how these pieces should go together. A wonderfully melodic guitar solo. You always hear Rivers play guitar. He's he's a great guitarist. He knows, you know, he's he's a he's he's just an he's an expert. But you rarely hear him play in recent years the way he plays on The British Are Coming. Cleopatra brings back the harmonica. It just barely, barely sort of evokes in the garage when you hear that come up. Um uh, Lonely Girl is a pretty good song. It's one from way back in the Green Sessions, and it would fit back on that album because it sort of is that amped up to 11, very fast, quick, poppy, sunny kind of song. But it fits in well. Uh, the first song, Ain't Got Nobody, also pretty good. This is, in my mind, the only, again, late-era al album that you need to hear. It's probably good on the level, in my mind, it's good on the level that the Green album is good. This is the Scott, there are seven more Weezer albums to discuss. <laughs> yeah. you, guys, like you guys can have that. <laughs> yes, yeah, I have seven more Weezer albums to discuss, and I have about you know about five minutes of thoughts on one of them. And I've listened to all of them multiple times. This is the thing that we do for you on Political Beats, by the way. We inflict this stuff on you just to make sure that there's nothing that we need to make sure that you know. Um, well, there's... Before, you were saying? I was going to say, there's what you need to know, what you need to hear, uh, if you're transitioning at all. The White Album, 
I've heard a lot of people defend the white album and say, and I, it doesn't do it for me. Nope, either. nope, nope. And they they went the exact opposite direction of what they did on Everything Will Be All Right in the End, which is they go to the hot producer, Jake Sinclair, comes back. He's the one that mangled Ratitude. They invite him back for the White <laughs> Album after he's produced some Taylor Swift, and you get exactly what you think you get. You get this overdubbed, layered vocals, the straight, plotting percussion. I do not get the feeling that the White Album is anywhere near as good as the album that came before, with the exception of really one of their best single songs of this late era and that's LA Girls. LA Girls is a really nice song. It's one of those moments that reminds us that that band that we love is still in there somewhere. Everything all right, everything will be all right in the end shows you they could probably put together a full album if they really committed to it and LA Girls shows you sort of that one-off songwriting performance ability is still there. That's by far the best song on the, the White Album. years off between records like a lot of other bands do they also put themselves through a pretty brutal work schedule they're always out there again because i think they think they need to always constantly be touring and being exposed or else fan service fan service fan service no no before we move on i know you were actually kind of a fan of the whiteout yeah i think this is their third best i think it you know it's huh uh, i can't say between pinkerton or blue album those two and then white album um, this is the only other one I would consider a great album. I think it's this one is uh, the best lyrics they've had since Pinkerton. And so I think, Jeff, you were saying you don't really listen to the lyrics. You listen more to the sound. I think right. Everything Will Be All Right is a much better sound, sounds better, um, more rock, more dynamic, more varied. This one um, is a little bit, you know, like you were saying, Scott, a little bit more plotting, more of the same. But the lyrics, I think, are the best since Pinkerton. I think um, you know he has one song that's like a tribute to his to his wife on here, um, talking about her upbringing and their relationship. And then thank God for girls. I think so, I mean it's just a funny song. Some really good, really good wordplay in there. So if you if you want to take the time and actually listen to the lyrics and stuff, it's a I think it's a great album. But um, but yeah, the production for sure suffers. I'm so glad I got a girl to think of, even though she isn't mine. I think about her all the day and all the night It's enough to know that she's alive She says I give a sweaty palm She almost had a heart attack The truth is that I'm just as scared I don't know how to act I wish that I could get to know her better But meeting up in real life will cause illusion in the shadow I call the name into all the trees Sing a song down on one knee Looking at the underwear page of this year's catalog Like when I was 14 I'm levitating like a magnet Turn the wrong way around I'm like an idiot for kids Trying to meditate All the better love From the past Pulled down Thank God 
Oh, this is, I think, the last gasp before the sort of onslaught of albums, the, the highest pace they've had um, ever. Like, they're, so you have, you know, we, being a Weezer fan is like Charlie Brown kicking the football. Just when you think, you know, okay, I'll, I'll kick the football one last time. We'll see if they whip it away, and they let you kick it. Uh, you know, everything will be all right in the end. And the White Album, finally some good albums, the first in, you know, almost a decade. And then they come back and they do seven albums in five or five or six albums in five years, all of which are bad. Well, I mean, wait a second. I, I, I think we have to give them some credit here. They really kept the winning streak going with Pacific Daydream. Stop it. It was Scott's favorite record, Pacific Daydream. Scott, I know you said you wanted to reserve like a, like a whole chunk at the end of the show for this one. So this is where I throw up the white flag and <laughs> I submit. Um, I, I, I quit. I'm done. I listened to Pacific Daydream and I listened to a I'm few out. tracks from the Black Album and the Teal Album, and I'm out. I'm I'm done. It, it can't. It, it's not going to get better from here. Pacific Daydream begins with a song called Mexican Fender in which Rivers Cuomo swipes the guitar riffs from Jay Giles on Love Stinks. And it doesn't get better from there. Butch Walker, who we've talked about previously, produces here. Butch Walker is very much in the, you know, uh, figuring out what's hot now and trying to appeal to the 12 to 15-year-olds. And my note on Pacific Daydream, and you'll know why this is why I had to stop at this point. Shop on Santa Monica and 7th Street. The salesman tried to get my attention to sell me a Mexican fender. She came to get a 10,000 steps and hang out with her boyfriend. But I was only trying to get to know her, so I took her out to the ocean. It was hot, hot, 100 degrees, but she only went in up to her knees. She didn't want to take off the jeans Cause that would be insane My summer love summer love uh, Pacific Daydream is Weezer reinvented as Train Now, lyrically, Rivers has always been For those a little... who don't understand, by the way Scott has talked on many oh, Patreon yeah. episodes yeah about how Train is perhaps his least favorite band of all time. No doubt. They might not even be a band you're familiar with, but believe me, they suck. They're terrible. And this is Weezer, again, reinvented as Train. Lyrically, Rivers always has been a little too close to uh, to Train lyrics because th- th- the lyrics on Train songs are worse than the music, and that's saying a lot. And here he sort of gives himself completely over to both lyrically and musically doing this this thing that train would do and that is i'm sorry people why i had to wave the white flag at pacific daydream and say i quit i'm i'm out i have to rely on noah and jeff to listen for hours on end to the teal album the black album okay human van weezer and the four season albums that have been released in the past eight months i haven't even listened to those four season albums i'm not <laughs> no even gonna has. lie to you no one has okay but i'm gonna actually have unless you have deep thoughts, Noah, about Pacific Daydream. Because, again, I know this is one that really inspires the fans. Um, I actually do have some thoughts on the Teal album. Because yeah. this is, for those who, actually, I think most people probably are aware, because this is it for the extremely online, who I assume are part of our listener base, uh, this is quite the little phenomenon. 
it, it's as recently as three years ago. All of a sudden, Weezer was back in the news for doing this goofy, ironic cover of Be- Toto's because Africa. Why? And here's a, here's an important point, not to interrupt Jeff. I'm sorry, but why? Yeah, no, no, go for why it. Did why did they do it? Because the fans asked them to. It's it's more fan service. Someone kept tweeting at Weezer saying, "Please do a cover of Africa. Please do a cover of Africa. Please do a cover of Africa." And they did it. It's just they, more they fan did it, service. And, and thus proving, by the way, Rivers Cuomo's thesis. The fan service is, is where it's at. It became a hit and a viral sensation. The wild dogs cry out in the night As they grow restless Longing for some solitary company I know that I must do what's right Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus Above the Serengeti What's deep inside Frightened of this thing that I've become It's gonna take a ride to drag me away from you There's nothing that a hundred men no more could ever do I press the reins down in Africa And it literally exploded and therefore birthed an album which is of course their covers album now in some ways this is one of the easiest albums that weezer has ever made to listen to because you know it's 12 incredibly famous or 10 incredibly famous songs and aside from weezer's version of no scrubs it's really hard to screw these songs up and yet they somehow managed to screw up africa which is that (laughs) i hate hate that cover Simply because of its featurelessness. It reminds me of exactly of a bar band. There is nothing that is subtracted from the original arrangement. There is nothing that is added to it. Nothing is changed about it. There is no unique take or no unique flavor on it. My wife insists she likes their version of Sweet Dreams Are Made of These, and I hate it. I hate it because I don't feel like there's – it's just – it's the same song as the Eurythmics except worse. Happy together, same song, except worse. But I will confess, I do like their version of Take On Me. I know, and you're probably oofing, but man, I actually think that he changes things up there. There's that little acoustic break where he's just singing this song. And there's the moment where you just get the sense that, like, you know, Rivers Cuomo really just always wanted to sing that beautiful Swedish falsetto in the chorus. And now here's his chance to do it. And actually... He does a creditable job. It's karaoke, but in this case, it's karaoke I can actually kind of get behind. But other than that, why does this album exist? Because the fans wanted it. And guess what? The fans laughed it off. Oh, things that you say, is it life for? Just to play my worries away. You're all the things I've got to remember. You're shying away. Well, I'll be coming for you anyway.
this, you know, this ties back to something I mentioned earlier. Um, you got to see Weezer live to understand a lot of what they've done since Pinkerton. Like, there's stuff that just does not work on an album that kills live. Um, I mean, Stand By Me on here, it's a by-the-numbers cover of a song we've all heard a million times. But when they do it live, we Rivers gets in this little boat, and they wheel it out up through the ramps in the concert. And he's in this little boat with an acoustic guitar. All the lights go down. Everybody hushes. People get out their lighters. Spotlights focus on Rivers. It's just him and a guitar singing Stand By Me by himself. And then it goes in. Sometimes he goes into Take On Me, or sometimes he just goes back on stage. But it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's the best fan service. But on the record, totally flat. It's pointless. Why would they release this? And it's the same for a lot of the stuff. Like, you know, a lot of the stuff on Make Believe or, um, or you know, Green Album, it's kind of flat on the record, but live it kills, which is the same for Kiss and Cheap Trick. I mean, Kiss and Cheap Trick, their most famous singles were live, right? Um, Rock and Roll All Night um, and Cheap Trick. Um, uh, I Want oh, You to Want Me. I Want You to Want Me. Yeah, they're the live versions are, uh, are what's played on the radio because they have the energy live. Uh, I think that's totally the same for Weezer. So my question to you guys is, which is worse, the Black Album or their weird Van Halen tribute, Van Weezer? Oh, Black Album. The, well, I, I love that cover. It's a shame. That's a really beautiful photograph. They, they have really good photographic aesthetic. <laughs> and yet the albums, yes. Wow. This is definitely, you know, there, there have been quite a few Black Albums in, in, in their day. Uh, this is not a patch on Prince's, I've got to say. Um, yeah, whatever. It's supposed to be their, quote, dark thing. The ideas of these songs have been sitting in the vaults for a decade. They kept on saying, like, as far back as, like, 2004, oh, we're going to do this Black Album. Uh, finally came out, and I don't know. I listened to it once. And I'm not going to lie. I'm usually a very conscientious person when it comes to these things. This stuff feels like assembly product. And I go and I look at the writers, and I see the co-writers. And they're not members of the band. And that tells me all I need to know. Did you grab oh, this that? Is, uh, this is more like Spinal Tap's Black Up. <laughs> yeah, blacker than black. Did you uh, check out the song I, I labeled Beverly Hills Part 2, by the way, from Ben? No, I didn't, oh. precisely because you said so. <laughs> There's no reason uh, to. <laughs> well, 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 okay, which one was I it? I don't even remember. I think it's the second song on... on... Zombie Bastards, which is the no, one where he's making... that's not the one. Um... Well, that's the one where, where he's making fun of the fans complaining about, like, yeah, why are you guys so bad now? And like, Well, this is just the music we want to do. All, well... all the good ones. Yeah, the, the second song on Van Weezer, all the good ones. Yeah. Beverly Hills. Part oh, two. oh, on oh, the, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. So in between, they did this weird, like, uh, strings only novelty album called OK Human. Ha ha, yeah. parody OK Computer. You know, try not to name your bad album after a much better great album because all you're going to do is draw attention to the fact that you aren't Radiohead. Uh, and there was a time when we thought you guys might turn into Radiohead, and you didn't. Um, but what do you think of their their fantastic Van Weezer album, which has the ACDC lightning bolt right behind you know uh, Van Halen? Uh, as if we 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 didn't tell you at the beginning of the show that Kiss is the best filter through which to understand this band. They make it as explicit as possible here. This is their last album to date, except for these weird EPs. Isn't this their 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 crowning achievement, Scott? Nope. Nope. <laughs> I I gave this out all the good ones of, minutes folks, of my time, folks. All the good ones. If you thought Beverly Hills was an earworm uh, in the bad sense of the term, 
check this one out. Um, I haven't even heard it yet, but I just know that I'm going to have to mix it after we're done with the show, and I'm already feeling the retro. I'm feeling retrospective regret in advance. She was thirsty, I was hungry for a star with somebody Who wouldn't break my heart like the last one, but this one She plays for all the marbles, her Nietzsche books are conversation starters And damn I think I loved her from the first sight I saw the light, the clouds opened up, rest in peace, good night say about this album is that it's mediocre well i mean you know what improvement on the black album i i say it's as okay human and van weezer are a slight step up from pacific daydream and black and that they're not actively bad they're just not, they're just forgettable um i mean okay human for some reason got a decent amount of praise because it i mean it was ambitious but it was really just a bunch of mediocre weezer songs played by an orchestra i want to so you were saying Oh, yeah, and then Van Weezer is just a bunch of mediocre Weezer songs with more distortion. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> just the same as they've been doing 15 years. I want to end this show, which obviously has is, is been a, a bit of taking the mickey out on Weezer for the last couple, uh, you know, of minutes, by pointing out that one thing here to keep in mind is that we are aging out of the demographic they're aiming for, which might account for some of our complete lack of sympathy to this music they're not trying to hit me anymore I'm, I'm a 42 year old man I'm married with children I like dreamy thoughtful art weird strange stuff they're going after a younger crowd uh, a little bit more adenoidal a little bit more adolescent and very again with this almost clinical precision that is where Rivers Cuomo has been aiming and it's weird I get it because he's like 55 he's older than even I am um, but when I say that none of these last seven to eight albums have any appeal for me, I also realize that I'm not the target audience. And maybe you guys aren't either. And so they seem to be doing just fine, <laughs> just despite what we're saying about them. So I do feel a little bit bad about all of that. Right. If you go back to some of his interviews from last year, I think he's finally stopped aiming for uh, that demographic. I think Pacific Daydream and the Black Album, maybe the Teal Album, with that last gasp of like, let's try to make the pop song for the teenagers. And then, because OK Human, it's, you know, it's, it's ambitious, but doesn't really work. Same with Van Weezer. I mean, you know, hair metal is not going for the kids. He, he talks about how he, you know, he was trying to calculate the perfect pop song for a decade. You know, he started doing computer programming in 2016 to use algorithms to make pop songs. Um, but finally, he's, finally comfortable making music for himself like he just wanted to do an orchestra album he just wanted to do something for metal and i you know i kind of appreciate that i'm you know part of me is like great glad is happy um but it's not that good but it, i mean he's finally realized like i think there's nothing more that nothing that he would like more than to create a soulless anodyne song that pleases millions of fans <laughs> but he's realized he's not able to do that anymore and so he's just doing whatever the hell he wants which is admirable but 
doesn't create very good music. To, to Jeff's point, I mean, yes, uh, we've been critical and I've been critical and yes, some of this is not great music. Uh, I don't want the, the takeaway to be that they've, they've committed the, you know, the, the, the sin of, of making bad music now for most of the past 20 years or whatever, whatever number you want to put on it. Um, because the first albums stand incredibly tall and essentially it's the same band. Right, this is not a band of rotate. We haven't talked a lot about the band members. It's not a band of rotating members around rivers. Right, it's essentially the same four guys going back to when Scott uh, Schreiner joined in what twenty oh two, I think. So these guys, I, I always come back to this point. I mean, yeah, the money's probably good, but anyone in the band, if they felt like it was uh, artistically, you know, they 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 could leave. Right, I mean. And yet they've stayed with Rivers for almost 30 years now. Most of those guys, two of those three guys, have stayed with them for a long, long time. So there's something happening there that works utterly and completely for them. Works for the band, works for Rivers, works for their touring, works for, works for all of that stuff. And the fact that we don't like it as much as the, the teenage fans who come out to see the, the blinking W behind them on tour every summer as they play these songs... There's an audience for that, and it's it's not us. As Jeff said, we're, we're, we're aged way out of that target demographic for, for Weezer these days. And I, I don't want to, I don't know what it means, but I don't want to discount the fact that through all of this, through all these albums and all these songs and these different attempts to, 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 to create great music or at least music that will sell for the masses, that, that the band has stayed together. There, there's something there that I can't explain that that's probably a secret of Weezer as to why they've lasted so long, as to why some still find that music resonating with them. Whatever that is, I don't know, but it's there. It's there somewhere. Yeah, I think through it all, you know, they, they're still having fun, which I think makes a big difference. You know, they're, they're not doing this for a paycheck. They're not doing this because they, you know, think that they can return to greatness. They're doing it because it's fun. They like being together. They like playing music. Um, and frankly, you know, they put out a lot of a lot of crap, but they, you know, compared to other bands of their era, they're they stayed, they've made good music longer. I mean, they were making good music up through 2016. I'd say every album um, until probably Pacific Daydream had at least one or two really good songs, which is more than you can say for most of their peers. I mean, Green Day stopped being good in 2004 or before, you know, maybe Green Day had like two or three good albums. Um I mean, some hey, 41 hey, listen, off well, my, my, my favorite band, one of my favorite bands of all time is My Bloody Valentine. They had one good album. <laughs> yeah. Where okay. you know, Gr- You know, Green Day has zero good albums as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right. Weezer has two. And, and maybe if you add it all up, you get to like three and a half. If you, yeah. if you, you, you push all the component parts, compress them into an album, you can get to more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is more than you could say for most of their peers, you know, which I think. You know, if you took all the good stuff and you just had the good stuff, you'd say, wow, you know, what a career. Right. All right. I think we're on that point of the show where we take a look and give you our two albums and five songs. Guys, I have never done this before in 117 episodes. I'm wondering if we can just concede that all three of us will tell you to buy the same two Weezer albums. Is yeah, that correct? Ratitude and Rat- early. Rat- well, I, okay, I'm Ratitude and Pacific Daydream. So uh, we're not season spring and season summer. <laughs> so we're not. Uh, are we all saying the blue album and Pinkerton? Is there any? Yes. Doubt? You know what? We, yeah. I, I, well, actually, you know what? I'm speaking for Noah. What do you agree? Yeah, I'd say let's give our two other albums. 
No, 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 it's those two albums. <laughs> if it's my two other albums, it's the Green Album and Maladroit then, okay? Then, then, there you go. The next two is the way I would put it. I would say there. white and green. There you go. All right, Scott. so let's, let's at least... Oh, uh, uh, I'd say Maladroit, and I think everything would be all right in the end. I think there you go. So now now five now songs. Now the five songs. The five songs that people should hear uh, from Weezer. Our guest, Noah Weinrich from Heritage Action. Find him on Twitter at Weinrich underscore Noah. Noah, your five songs from Weezer's lengthy career. All right. These aren't probably the singles you've heard, but they're also not deep tracks. I'm going to give you some medium tracks. Uh, Only in Dreams from the Blue Album. Uh, The Good Life from Pinkerton. Island in the Sun from the Green Album. Uh, The Greatest Man That Ever Lived from the Red Album. And Thank God for Girls from the White Album. So that's covering early, mid late some of their most ambitious and some of their best pop songs uh all right i'm just gonna tell you all five of my selections are from the first two albums i just (laughs) i don't i don't know how to not do that surf wax america say it ain't so in the garage from the blue album and uh you know what take that back i'm uh, scratch in the garage surf wax america say it ain't so from the blue album and i'm gonna take three from pinkerton the good life across the sea Pink Triangle are the three from uh, from Pinkerton. Those are the Weezer songs I think you should start with. Jeff, over to you. Okay, I'm going to have to be that guy and say my choice from the Blue Album is actually Buddy Holly. Yeah, I know it's the big hit. It's the big famous song. It's pop as hell. It's also perfectly written from, from the goofy lyric to the brilliant melody to the production, which is sparklingly perfect. Yeah, it's still my favorite song on that record. From Pinkerton, gosh, uh, Jeff, can I pause you for a second? Yeah. I, w- I will say to any listener who's made it this far, like hour and a half, two hours into this podcast, who has never heard Buddy Holly, I will send you $10 in the mail. Go to my Twitter, at me, if you've made it this far and you haven't heard Buddy Holly, I'll send you $10. Well, they're going to lie to you, man. People, There's a lot of people out there trying to make a buck these days. Yeah, that's okay, probably you know? true. Okay, you're going to be a poor man soon. Anyway. So, after Buddy Holly, I'll say my two choices from Pinkerton, I'd say Across the Sea, which Scott mentioned, and The Good Life. Good Life, I get it. It's, it's the song that, that I feel like Rivers Cuomo has been trying to re- This one is, is bigger and dumber and better than all the rest, and it, and it also seems so heartfelt and sincere. Uh, from the Green Album, I'll say Hashpipe, which, again, you know, if, if it's just going to be like, you know, stupid arena rock riff, that one is as effective as they get. And I think from Maladroit, I'll pick one last one and just say, you know, Burnt Jam as a kind of classic example of, of the weird places that I wanted this band to go a lot more than they ever did and would go in the future. But there was always an alternate universe where they became, you know, the cheap trick version of pavement. And I guess in my heart, that's how they always still are.
go. It's the Political Beats look at the music and career of Weezer. We thank our guest for today's program. He is a director of communications for Heritage Action, the grassroots and advocacy arm of the Heritage Foundation. He's on Twitter at Weinrich underscore Noah. That's where to go to claim your $10. Noah Reinwick, thanks for joining us here on the Weezer episode of Political Beats. Thank you for having me. Jeff, successful controversial controversial successful dance through an artist with whom we know we would have to say bad things about some of their work which we don't like it's, to do but we, we we rarely do it actually but every now and then it's it's always a fun challenge that's right and you can't talk yep. about the, the greatness of those first two albums without on this on this show at least talking about hey, hey, the rest listen, of things don't blame us blame those guys they're the ones who <laughs> find jeff on twitter at esoteric cd my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Remember, patreon.com slash political beat. Support us there. Entry level, mid-level, and our upper level best friends. Early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content, episodes, remastered episodes, playlists, and more. Patreon.com slash political beats. And we come to the part of the program where we thank some of our Patreon supporters individually and directly for their support. Thanks to Kenton Hoover. Josh Pierce, Jeffrey Kempenich, Christopher Merkel, Stephen McHugh, Angela Guillory, Brian Zeno, Sam Braff, Michael Meharis, Brian Berkey, and Jay Musafori. We appreciate all your support through the years for helping us do what we do here on Political Beats. You can join, you can help at patreon.com slash political beats. Also subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or over to nationalreview.com. Find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.